that talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. To be clear, this is not the Zach Smith podcast. So if you are looking for that new Ohio State podcast, to repeat, this is Buckeye Talk from Cleveland.com. The Zach Smith podcast is something else. Uh, Doug Lamarie's here in my basement on Tuesday night. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening. Just me, but not just me this week. Three great guests, and we're going big picture. I've already had these conversations, so I can tell you they're interesting. And what I wanted to do was get a view on what the rest of the Big Ten thinks about Ohio State right now. So in the process of this, we are going to learn about what I think probably are the three um, most difficult games on Ohio State's schedule in 2019. We're going to learn about those teams. We're also going to learn what they think of Ohio State, of Urban Meyer's retirement, of Ryan Day, that kind of thing. And we're going to do that by talking about Penn State, by talking about Nebraska, and by talking about Michigan. We have three beat writers. Bob Flounders covers Penn State, an old friend of mine from way back in the day, from Penn Live and the Harrisburg Patriot News. Aaron McMahon from MLive uh, is going to talk about Michigan. And Sam McEwen, who's covered Nebraska forever for the Omaha World Herald, is going to check in on the Cornhuskers. This was spurred because the top 25 magazines are starting to come out, right? So the Athlon Sports preseason college football magazine is out. Uh, And Ohio State is ranked fifth in the Athlon rankings. Here are the Big Ten teams ranked by Athlon. And all these are going to be similar. Phil Steele's magazine is getting finished right now. That's going to be out, and we're definitely going to try to have Phil on again. I'm sure we will at some point. We had Phil on last summer. Everybody loved him because everybody loves Phil Steele. I love Phil Steele. He'll be on. The AP preseason poll will kind of look like this, right? Do I vote in that? I think I do again. Yikes. Um, So here's where people are thinking. Michigan is four. Ohio State is five. Penn State, 14, Michigan State, 16, Nebraska, 17, Iowa, 18, Wisconsin, 19. So Ohio State plays nine Big Ten games. Five of those nine Big Ten games are against teams that are ranked in the preseason. This is what I've been talking about with what I think is a sneaky good Big Ten schedule that in the first... They play Indiana before they play Miami, but once they hit the last weekend in September, they have a run of four Big Ten games that are at Nebraska ranked, home Michigan State ranked, at Northwestern unranked but tough, home Wisconsin ranked. Okay, so that's what we want to talk about. We'll have a schedule podcast later this summer where we'll really, really, really dig in. But what I want to talk about is the Big Ten in general, and I put it out in a Twitter poll question this week. I said, I asked, who are the teams? We also did a poll question on pizza. We're going to get to that. Fascinating, eye-opening. I think this is important pizza research that we are doing here at Buckeye Talk. What I put out this week was, which Big Ten team is the biggest threat to Ohio State this season? If you don't like any of the answers, respond with your choice and why. Twitter poll, only four choices. The choices were Penn State, Michigan, Nebraska, the three beat writers on this podcast, or none. There is no threat. Ohio State's in control. 
41% said Michigan. A lot of respect for Harbaugh and the boys. Shea Patterson, skill position guys, lost some on defense. We'll get to that with Aaron. 41% Michigan, and that's at Michigan. 41% Michigan. Doug, don't ramble. 41% Michigan. Get to the point. 41% Michigan. 32% said none. No threat. Ohio State's in control. 15% Penn State. 12% Nebraska. I disagree. And maybe our conversations with these beat writers will help explain this a little bit. But I disagree. Um, I think it's Nebraska. Urban Meyer was 54-4 and in regular season Big Ten games in seven years. He was undefeated in 12-13-14 and 14 in Big Ten regular season play. Lost to Michigan State in 15, Penn State in 16, but the last two years who got him the West. Iowa in 17, Purdue in 18, you know that. And before we get to these interviews, I want to get to a really good question from Jay Alexander's. Midwest HKY Mind. I can never... You, do people still use tiny URL, right? You like you put in a website address and you can get a tiny URL as the new link, right? And it shortens it. I, I have read... We, I read tiny URL as tin URL all the time. So sometimes your Twitter handles are hard for me to read... Midwest Hockey Mind? HKY Mind? Is that what it is, Jay Alexanders? Here's his question. I don't, I don't know where the brakes are. Tenural, tiny URL. Are we starting to see a shift in power in the conference? What direction is the conference as a whole trending? Penn State and Michigan State seem a bit rudderless at the moment. Michigan and Ohio State seem like the two major players and then a field of everyone else. This is where I think this conference might be trending, which is... Contrary to what I've thought and what I've asked, I've asked Jim Delaney about this at Big Ten Media Days over the years. Everyone has. There's always been a perception about an imbalance in power because the Big Ten has decided to align geographically and just the population centers. There are bigger population centers in the east than there are in the west. Um, and you worried that the West could not compete with the Big Ten East. You look at the highest rankings, there are seven Big Ten teams ranked in the Athlon rankings. The top four of the East, Michigan, four, Ohio State, five, Penn State, 14, Michigan State, 16. But then the West is there, right? Nebraska, Iowa, Wisconsin. Northwestern just won the West last year. Purdue's on the rise, right? I think the possible balance of power, the shift there might be westward. I think it might be westward. And I think Paul Christ, Wisconsin was overrated last year. They couldn't live up to the hype. Now everyone's going to underrate Wisconsin, and Wisconsin's going to beat people this year. I haven't analyzed them. I don't know anybody on the team. That's my Wisconsin analysis, and I guarantee you once I do analyze them, and I will, that's what the analysis is going to be. Because they're going to have a chip on their shoulder. Everyone's going to underrate them. They're not going to be picked as a playoff team like everybody did last year, and all of a sudden they're going to have a much better year than they did a year ago. Be ready for that. Iowa, Kirk Ferentz, everybody, oh, he's boring, whatever. Kirk Ferentz beats people and wins. But now, if Nebraska gets it going, Pat Fitzgerald at Northwestern's a really good coach, and Jeff Brom at Purdue, if that gets going, 
Now the West gets dangerous. Meanwhile, the East, the point about Penn State and Michigan State rudderless, and we get to this in our Penn State conversation, <clears throat> it's not sick, it's the talking. Where is James Franklin? With Saquon Barkley and Trace McSorley gone, and I don't want to take away from our conversation with Bob Flounders, where is Penn State? You will find out this year. Rudderless? Without the two defining players of the past three years that have put James Franklin in a good position at Penn State, can he now move to the next level without those guys? Transition and still win. And then Mark D'Antonio, and we talk about this with Sam McEwen. He has some thoughts on this. Michigan State. How long is Mark D'Antonio going to be at Michigan State? And is Michigan State maybe nearing the end of this extended Mark D'Antonio run? So, I think it's possible. Ohio State's not really going anywhere. And I think Michigan and Harbaugh are real. But I do think if you thought the power in the Big Ten was going to even lean more to the East because when they hired Chris Ash at Rutgers and DJ Durkin at Maryland, you thought, hey, sleeping giants, population, demographics, East Coast, recruiting areas. Maryland and Rutgers were the place to be. DJ Durkin, horrible dereliction of duty, gets fired at Maryland. Chris Ash hasn't, can't beat a middle school team at Rutgers. But what happened? Revitalizing program-changing hires at Nebraska with Scott Frost, at Purdue with Jeff Brom. They pay to keep Jeff Brom and keep people away. They get Scott Frost from Central Florida when other people want him. Could P.J. Fleck get something going? Was a hot guy when Minnesota got him. At this point, who do you think is going to get it going sooner? Minnesota, Maryland, or Rutgers? You know, four years ago, you would have said Maryland and Rutgers, here they come. Maybe now you say Minnesota. I think we could see a shift to the West. And that's why, from the Ohio State perspective, I'm more worried about this Nebraska game. Um, Nebraska would have been my pick in that poll. And so we're going to work in some of your questions, more of your questions. Jay Alexander's Midwest Hockey Mind. Is that right, Jay? Tell me. Tweet me and tell me. We're going to start off with Sam McEwen and this Nebraska discussion. September 28th, it's the fifth game of the season. Ohio State at Nebraska. Let's find out what Nebraska is thinking about Ohio State. And let's think about what Sam and I think about the idea of Nebraska providing maybe the toughest challenge to Ryan Day in his first year with the Buckeyes. Sam McEwen from the Omaha World Herald here on Buckeye Talk. Joined by Sam McEwen, fantastic Nebraska writer, um, has been doing this for a while and understands Nebraska football and the landscape of the Big Ten as well as anybody. Sam, thanks for taking time out of your offseason. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Doug. So listen, man, we were just talking before we started the recording here just about what Scott Frost is doing, and, and I want to inform Ohio State fans about that, and then I want to get your, your read on Ohio State, but... You were talking about some recruiting things. Just in general, how would you describe how aggressive Scott Frost has been in trying to get Nebraska football back to the level that it was when he was there? Very aggressive. Um, it's probably one of the most aggressive recruiting operations in the country. Um, they have offered more scholarships for the 2020 cycle, and I would assume that will remain true for additional cycles to come than any other school in the country. Um, more than Michigan, more than Tennessee, and those two schools are pretty aggressive too. 
but uh, but Nebraska is Nebraska is the most aggressive, and they want to get they want to get guys around here. So what they call in Nebraska the 500 mile radius, uh, that was originally coined by Bill Callahan, who was a good recruiter, if not a great coach, um, 15 20 years ago, and since then that's always been a that's always been a phrase, uh, and um, they want to recruit nationally too. Uh, so it, if you go by the 247 sports database, which is kind of keeping track of all the offers, they're around 400 and they've offered roughly 60 in Florida, 60 in Texas, 30 in California, 30 in Georgia. Now here's a, here's a big change with frost from every other coach they've had prior to this 24 in Alabama. Wow. So they, they, they've never offered kids in Alabama like they're offering right now. Their quarterback, Logan Smothers, is from Alabama. Uh, he's going to play, uh, I believe, down in Mobile or Muscle Shores um, this year. He was originally playing at Athens. Uh, but 15 from Missouri, 11 from New Jersey. Uh, they're they're heavy in Arizona. They got three uh, signees from Arizona last year, including a guy that was really, really good, Noah Pola Gates. Um, 10 in Michigan, just 10 in Ohio. Nebraska hasn't recruited Ohio hard since Vince Merrow left Nebraska staff and joined Kentucky staff. And obviously Kentucky recruits Ohio very hard. Very hard. Um, they recruit. Yeah. Very, they, yep. Yeah. They couldn't get it. They couldn't find a job for Vince on Nebraska staff at the time. Bo Pelini couldn't. And when Vince walked out the door, Kentucky got all those players. That's kind of how that worked. And it's, it built the back of that program. And that's part of why they're good. Um, but they recruit everywhere. I mean, they've, they've offered seven kids in Hawaii. Their defensive line coach is from Hawaii. Um, coached in Hawaii. He was a high school coach in Hawaii. And, and so he was just out there last week offering a bunch of kids. And so um, it is a nationwide recruiting process. Uh, they did pretty well last year coming off the four and eight season. They had a top 20 class, uh, which is an achievement in and of itself. It's not, it's not an Ohio state stratosphere per se. Um, it's not what Urban Meyer was doing, but they have a harder time than Ohio state did because of the proximity of athletes. So um what Nebraska was able to do last year was very impressive, uh, given given their record. Uh, so he's put together two top 25 classes in a row, and last year's class was uh, was essentially a yeah it was a top 20 class. So Sam, with your experience with with Nebraska football, when you watch Scott Frost recruit, when you watch him run this program, when you watch him motivate guys last year, when you watch him install his offensive and defensive systems last year, when you're just around the guy. Do you think to yourself, yes, this is going to work. He's going to get Nebraska back to the point where at the very least they're contending for the West division in the Big Ten on a regular basis. Do, do you get that feel from him, or are there things that lead you to maybe question that? I get that feel from him. Um, part of the reason you get the feel is that all of the, the particulars are in place, right? So, like, the data, just the, the raw recruiting data is there. Um, they've recruited pretty well. The offense that he runs, I think, is on the right side of current college football trends. Um, what Mike Riley was trying to do was something similar to Wisconsin, only trying to do it with worse linemen, which is very hard to do. Uh, Scott Ross has gone to a system that's a no huddle, uh, fast tempo spread system, uh, which is very similar to Oklahoma or what they used at Oregon. Frost puts his own spin on it. Um, but it's that it's that kind of stuff, and and it's worked in a lot of different places. Uh, so yeah, I think they're going to get back to contending for the West every year. 
they're probably going to be picked to win the West this season. I think it's going to be tight. I'd probably have them one or two right now. Um, but yeah, I think they're going to get back to that point. The question of whether or not they get back to, you know, winning the Big Ten, which they've never actually done, um, but uh, and I and also making the college football playoff is is a bigger challenge. Um, you know that that that's that's always difficult to do because to make a playoff you have to win eleven or twelve games. There's there's now a statistical history of that, and the only team that's been able to do that consistently in the Big Ten is Urban Meyer's Ohio State program. Yep. And, and so uh, we'll see if any other team can do that. I I'm skeptical um, that any team can match what Urban Meyer was doing every single year, but I think Nebraska is as positioned as well as any team in the Big Ten, including Ohio State, to do that. All right. A, a million questions. Man, you're like leading me right into where I want to go. Let, let, let me start here. A year ago, after the 0-6 start for Nebraska, they win two games. They're 2-6 and six going into the Ohio State game. And Urban Meyer all week is talking about Nebraska, Nebraska. He's worried about Nebraska. And I was kind of like, whatever. It's coach speak. You talk up the opponent. And then 36-31, you see a lot of young Adrian Martinez and, and what that's going to become. J.D. Spielman yeah. is, is the type of player that has bothered Ohio State, whether it's Rondale Moore or K.J. Hamler at Penn State, that kind of guy. Ohio State doesn't really mm-hmm. have that kind of guy, and they have trouble defending that kind of guy, which a lot of defenses do. When, how much more trouble? When you think about what Adrian Martinez was last year and what you think he'll be this year, and then you think about some of the talent elsewhere on this team, how much more trouble is that Nebraska offense going to be, not just for Ohio State, but everybody in the Big Ten? Depends on how the offensive line comes along. Um, I, I think the line probably still needs some work because they lost some starters from last year. I think long term, um, you know, through Adrian's career here and then whomever is after that, I think it's going to traditionally be a difficult offense to stop. Um, you'd like to see it somewhere between 35 and 42 points a game. They were at 30 last year. I think they'd like to be between 35 and 42. At Central Florida, it was 49 but you have to consider the competition. Um, so I think long-term it's going to be, it's going to be a pain in the rear. Uh, their skill player recruiting is really good. Uh, they, they, they do, they do a good job there. Um, they got a kid by the name of Wondell Robinson, oh. uh, who is, is a lot like Rondell Moore. Love him. And so one, yeah, Wondell's really good. Uh, he isn't the only one. They got probably the best receiver in the state of Washington for whatever reason, Washington didn't offer him but a lot of other schools did. His name's Darian Chase. They got two receivers from the state of Oklahoma who are the number one and number two fastest kids in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, both of them run around a 10, 6, 100 meters. Uh, and both of those guys were four stars. So they're going to have a lot of speed. Um, I don't, you know, I, they don't have a lot of size at skill, skill positions. They have a running back who is still dealing with some legal issues in Maurice Washington, who in theory could be maybe the best receiver on the team. I, I think Maurice has the ability to do almost anything on a football field that relates to a skill, but he plays running back for now. Um, but, you know, they, they, they don't have a lot of size outside of Maurice, but uh, they have a lot of speed and, and it'll eventually it'll bear out as far as Adrian Martinez. I, you know, Ryan Day's not going to say it. I think he'd trade the guy he's got right now for Martinez. Um, I really do. I think any team in the big 10 would, um, and a lot of that isn't just because of Adrian's talent, but it's who he is as a person. Um, Adrian Martinez has a quarterback 
personality. Like it, he's easy to work with. He says a lot of the right things. He's, he, uh, he, he's not a best way to put, he's not a red ass. So he's not one of these guys that runs hot and cold and jumps all over people. And then is, you know, gets teammates ticked off at him. He's not like that at all. Um, he's a really good face of the program, a really good representative of it. Uh, so any school in the big 10, maybe not Michigan because Shea Patterson's pretty good there, uh, would, would love to have him because he just, he just brings everything to the table that you want. So, their offense is going to be very hard to stop over the next two seasons. And then um, going forward, they got to find a replacement, obviously, for Adrian, because he won't be here but three years. He's going to go to the NFL. I'm almost certain of that. And the guy that they're grooming uh, already to replace him is Christian McCaffrey's younger brother, Luke. Okay. Wow. Okay. All right. Let's get really specific on this, Sam. When Ohio State fans, when you look at this schedule, you know, we've been talking a lot on the podcast just about Urban Meyer only lost nine games in seven seasons. That's an unrealistic standard for anybody to live up to. Ohio State, you know, is basically a new offense. They have a lot of defensive uh, starters back, but it's an all-new defensive coaching staff, basically. So when you look at Ohio State's schedule, and I just keep, keep telling people to be realistic and maybe a little bit cautious. Cincinnati in week two is a you know maybe something for Ohio State to be wary of. Indiana at Indiana in week three, maybe they jump up and get you. But really, week five for Ohio State at Nebraska, I think is possibly for Ohio State the most dangerous game on the schedule. Does that sound right to you? Does that sound like week five with a, a, a quarterback in Adrian Martinez who's done it before and Ohio State has a quarterback in Justin Fields who really hasn't done it before, Ryan Day's mm-hmm. first year. Do you think that's an opportunity that Nebraska as a, as a program and as a fan base is going to be pointing to that to really make a statement in the Big Ten? And do you think they realistically, we're talking in May, so we're talking about can Nebraska beat Ohio State in week five on September 28th in May, but that's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Is that realistic? I do. Yes, it is. It is realistic. Um, I think Nebraska over time is going to have, um, you know, a a, a good rivalry with Ohio State, um, even though they're not necessarily going to play a lot in the regular season after, I guess, next season. Um, But, yeah, I think think Nebraska has a realistic shot of winning that game. That will be Ohio State's hardest game up to that point. I think Nebraska fans remember the last time Ohio State came here. It was 56 to 14, and it was really one of the most embarrassing games in in school history because Ohio State really toyed with Nebraska. I mean, they didn't hit a bunch of 70-yard plays. They, you know, they hit one long run, and then the rest of the night, you know, uh, J.C. Barrett just hit you know nine, ten, eleven, fourteen-yard passes and just just carved Nebraska up. So it was sort of embarrassing to watch. Um, a bunch of fans left at halftime. So I think Nebraska fans will be pretty juiced about that. Um, there's a there's a decent chance that Nebraska's 4-0 at that point. They have to go play at Colorado, which I think, you know, Colorado beat Nebraska last year. So you can't just chalk it up as a win. Uh, you know, Colorado has got athletes. They have a first-round draft pick. So uh, Nebraska has to, get, has to get over that hurdle before they do anything else. But uh, I think both teams will probably be undefeated. I guess if the game's on Fox, it'll be at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. Because that's when Fox puts their big yep. games at now, uh, so uh, I don't know if that helps or hurts. Nebraska's fan base at night is pretty special. Uh, it's a pretty electric atmosphere at night, but um, 
yeah, I think Nebraska's got a good shot of, of winning that game. I, uh, the day's probably going to come when I think they'll match up better um, against pro-style teams. Um, but that day's not here yet. So I would actually say if you gave me a choice between matching up against Ohio State and Michigan, I'd take Ohio State. And I think it showed last year when they played Michigan at Michigan. Granted, it was like four or five weeks earlier, but they could not handle Michigan's physicality, you know, and lining up with tight ends and fullbacks. And Nebraska couldn't handle that. They, they, they're not big enough on defense yet. They, they hadn't recruited for it. Um, and so Michigan ran them over. Ohio State doesn't, doesn't run teams over like that. And Nebraska can handle it. They've got some speed and some skill that can run with people a little bit. Um, and, and so I think at this very moment, a team like Michigan is harder for Nebraska than a team like Ohio State. A team like Wisconsin is harder for Nebraska than a team like Ohio State, just because of the, of the systems that they run and the physicality with which they play. No teams are quite as physical as Michigan and Wisconsin. So, Sam, you touched on this earlier. From your perspective, and maybe you've talked about this with people around the Nebraska program, I don't know, but just – when you see Urban Meyer, because you made a point of saying the only program in the Big Ten that could consistently compete at the playoff level was not Ohio State. It was Urban Meyer's Ohio State, which obviously is an astute point. Mm-hmm. By you. How do you view Ohio State now with a first year head coach in Ryan Day who's never been a head coach at any level? Do you feel like there is opportunity there in the Big Ten and specifically do you feel like there is opportunity for a program like Nebraska, which certainly feels like it's back on its way up, that maybe there won't just be this giant roadblock at the top of the conference the way there sort of has been for the seven years of the Urban Meyer era? Yes, I think there is an opportunity. I would say there right now there is a vacuum. Um, Urban Meyer's departure leaves a vacuum at the top of the league. Uh, that vacuum could, in fact, be filled by Ohio State and Ryan Day right away. I mean, it's possible that they could they could go 12 and one, and and everybody could kind of look around and be just like Lincoln Riley's Oklahoma, which um, which did that that exact thing. Uh, Bob Stoops left it to Lincoln Riley at the right time um, because he had Baker Mayfield, I think, for two years, uh, and and so he left him he left it at the right time and kind of put Lincoln Riley in position to be successful right away. Um, I don't know that Urban Meyer has left <laughs> has left quite as much for Ryan Day because he didn't leave Baker Mayfield. Uh, you know, Justin Fields may or may not be that good. It's it's hard to say. I, all I can do is watch Justin's highlight highlight tape from high school. I don't really count what he did at Georgia, even though it was impressive. Um, and, and just say I don't know. Uh, I don't know if he has the moxie and the playmaking ability and all those other things. He doesn't look like Dwayne Haskins per se. So. Um, we'll just have to see. But, yes, there's a vacuum at the top of the league right now. Um, I, I think I've written that. Uh, there's a huge opportunity for uh, Michigan. Uh, if they can't do it now, they're probably not doing it under Jim Harbaugh. They'll have to find somebody else uh, if, they can't, if they can't take control of the league at this moment. So the most, of the, pre- the, the, the most pressure is on him and is on Michigan because this, they can't ask for anything more than what they've got right at this moment. They don't have to try to beat Urban Meyer because he's gone. Um, there's, there is some, there's an opportunity for Nebraska, uh, to, to make a move. There's, there's an opportunity for Penn state if they can kind of figure out, you know, their roster. Um, I don't think Michigan state will fill that vacuum. I think Mark D'Antonio is in his last one or two years in the program and they're going to have to start over. 
Um, so that much I feel confident about. I, I, I thought that, that that era was over for a while now. Um, there's an opportunity for a school like Northwestern, even though it seems unlikely, but now they have a new practice facility and they're, you know, they've got great coaching stability. There's an opportunity there. And, and so there's, yeah, there's right at this moment, uh, sort of the Kings left the building and there, there is a chance for somebody to sort of enter that vacuum. It was true back in 2011 too, when Luke Fickle was there for one year and, you know, Michigan state and Kirk cousins, uh, you know, they make it to the, the, the title game and Wisconsin makes it to the title game. And, you know, Michigan state and Wisconsin were pretty darn good for the next four or five years. I mean, Michigan state had its best run ever yeah, uh, it's for, for those, for those four or five years. So um, you can't, I think Michigan state took advantage even, even as urban Meyer was there, Michigan state still took advantage of, of the opportunity to, um, to capitalize on Jim Trestle's firing or whatever you call that. Um, so there's that opportunity there again. And I think Ohio state's a great program. I think Ryan day did a real nice job of shepherding that team through last fall or whatever for those two months. Uh, obviously that was a ridiculous situation and, and uh, and he did a nice job. His quarterback threw for 50 touchdowns, which is nothing nothing to sneeze at. It's an amazing achievement. It's very hard to do. Uh, so he obviously did a good job with Dwayne Haskins, who is not Patrick Mahomes, right? Uh, but did a great job. So you so you tip your cap there. Um, I, I I guess I could ask you. I think his defensive coordinator might be a year or two past 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 his prime, and I'm not sure. Uh, if that if that situation has been addressed and resolved, I still think their defense could be a problem this year for them. Yeah, I, I'm not a I'm not a huge fan. Uh, I've written that and kind of made that clear in regards to the Greg Madison hire. I think there's a lot of potential. I think with Jeff Halfley, who came from the NFL as the co-defensive coordinator, and I think the way Ryan Day tried to explain it as it's almost like I think he really liked Halfley. He worked with Halfley in San Francisco with the 49ers, and that he was looking for a guy who knew the Big Ten to sort of help integrate Halfley back into college football. So you go and get Greg Madison, who again is just, I think, you know, wasn't even, wasn't even the coordinator at Michigan and gets a huge mm-hmm. raise to come be, you know, sort of the, the main co-coordinator at Ohio State. So I think they could have done a lot of different things there. And I think it's interesting to hear you say that, Sam, because I think a lot of Ohio State people, they have a lot of good young talent on the defense. They have a lot of starters back, and everybody sort of agrees that the coaching defensively last year was terrible and it can't get worse. So I do think Mm -hmm. a lot of Ohio State people, me included, have sort of talked ourselves into the the idea of, well, it has to be better because it Mm -hmm. can't be worse. That was one of the worst Ohio State defenses that fans had ever seen. But yet, it doesn't guarantee it. It's not automatic. We still have to see it, and, and there's a lot of things just with with this defense that people haven't seen yet. So it's an interesting point, right? Yeah, I mean, it's. I'll be curious to see if Madison is really, you know, if 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 his heart is truly in it. Um, it's I think it's gonna be hard to make that shift. Um, it's just gonna be challenging for him. I don't mean to disparage him. I I you know he he put a clown suit on Nebraska a couple times um, back when. Um, he was the DC under Brady Hoke. Yep. Uh, so he, you know, I mean, he knows what he's doing and, um, and Mich- and the shines off Michigan's current defensive coordinator based on what yep. happened with Ohio state. I mean, yep. they, Ohio state cracked the code and then Florida, which is a hideous offense, uh, you know, helped even though Devin Bush and Gary weren't in the game, but, 
Um, you know, I mean, once a team, once a, one offense cracks your code, it now all of a sudden you've got to think about how you're going to adjust. And somehow last season, Ohio State's defense, the, the code got cracked pretty quick. I, I think for what it's worth, Nebraska busted out some new plays against Ohio State that I'm not sure anyone has ever run before. There was a play thrown to the tight end that was impossible to defend. Um, and it was a really good scheme by Frost and his coordinator, Troy Walters. Um, so they pulled out some stuff for that Ohio State game that, that took all of us by surprise. And we had to go back and rewatch, and they never really explained it. But um, So Ohio State had some dilemmas in that game. But I, watching their defense that day, it didn't remind me well at all of the defense that I saw when I was there in 2016 when Ohio State won 62-3. to and right. I had like the four NFL first round draft picks in the yeah. secondary. And it's like, this is the best defense I've ever seen. You know, like right. this is the most talented group of defenders um, that I've ever witnessed on a football field. And so there's been times when I've watched Ohio State, especially when Nebraska's played them. I'm, I can't believe you can't beat this team with their players and their coaches. I mean, right. Urban Meyer's coaching this group of talent. Nebraska can't, but, but Dave's not, you know, I think, I always thought I predicted that Urban Meyer would 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 be out of Ohio State by in in seven years, um, and the wow. reason I thought that was and I put it on Twitter somewhere, so I'm not just pulling that out of my rear nice. end. Um, the reason I thought that is because I think the man is so consumed that, and he proved this at Florida too, that he just can't he can't do it for for 15 years. There's no off switch, and so and so he's so consumed by it. He's so driven. Um, that it just, just sort of burns up on it. And I, what happened last year wasn't solely that. I mean, I was there at Big Ten Media Days when Brett McMurphy asked that question, and I, you know, kind of watched the interplay that Meyer had at the table um, afterward. And I'm just like, this is, yeah, this doesn't look good. Nebraska fans didn't like Zach Smith for some of the things that they oh, it, thought was going on with yeah, Nebraska's receivers coach. And <laughs> so, you know, it was. I think I think no one in Nebraska was surprised by any of this, and, and people in Nebraska still talk about that guy. So, you know, but there was just a lot of things about Urban Meyer that you kind of knew eventually he was going to burn himself up or burn himself out, and he did. Um, and there's a template for this. It's Bob Stoops, what he did at Oklahoma with Lincoln Riley, and Ryan Day, I guess, fits that. He fits that bill, and we'll, I guess we're going to find out how, how good he is at at taking over that job. I think Nebraska should feel fortunate because if they hadn't hired Scott Frost last year, you know, there was always this thought, well, let's let's sort of Riley get through that third year and then see how he does with the brutal schedule in the fourth year. And then you can hire, you know, Scott after that. And of course, Riley fell apart in year three and they were able to get Scott. And I still think they got Scott at the right time because I think Ohio state probably would have gone after him um, if they had had a chance to. And I really do. Um, oh, Frost has got a lot of positive qualities. He, He's a good coach, and he's an interesting guy. Like he's he's compelling, even though he's not a showman or um, he he cuts a compelling figure. Anytime he's in a room, it, people are drawn to him and uh, captivated by him. Uh, it's it's interesting to watch, uh, and I don't say that you know I don't I I covered Scott in college when he was a college quarterback, and I was a student, so um, he he's changed in some ways, in good ways. And and I think he's got the sort of the figure that 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 could be become the top coach in the league if they can find a way to win nine or ten games 
one of these years. Sam, I'll, I'll let you go with this last question. And again, you built right into it. I think this is some stuff that you were writing at the time. Um, and I said I was going to do a list uh, of the best Big Ten basketball, uh, football coaching combos, because I think I was reading mm-hmm. stuff you were writing about Fred Hoiberg and Scott Frost. And it's funny, I think maybe the 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 school that I would have put number one was Michigan, and they just lost John Beeline, who, as we're recording yeah. this on Tuesday, is being introduced as the Cavs' new head coach. Um, I, for a place like Nebraska, which has um, such a passionate fan base, and I think people said that when the first time I came to Nebraska – um, when Ohio State visited the first time, I got that feeling that people had said, this is the fan base that most resembles Ohio State and the Big Ten, that it's everybody in the yeah. state is behind this one program, um, the way they feel about their team. It, it really was similar as an outsider to me. Where Nebraska yeah. is athletically right now, it feels like it, with a, with an athletic director that people trust and with two new hires and Scott Frost and Fred Hoiberg, just what is the feeling there overall about the potential of Nebraska athletics? And maybe when's the last time people had this much hope about the Cornhuskers in both sports? A long, long time. Um, I think that the the optimism is as high as it's ever been um, for these two programs. I think, uh, and in the case of football, it's optimism versus pessimism in part because Nebraska was so good in football for so long that people would go into seasons thinking more about what games they would lose and taking for granted all the games they would win. And so the games, the seasons, as you would know, this is true at Ohio state. Now the season started to boil down to like two or three games. You would, you would spend, you'd be like, well, they're going to beat Kansas and Kansas state and Missouri and all these other teams. What are they going to do against Oklahoma? And what are they going to do against you know Colorado? And how in the hell are they going to beat Miami or Florida State? And that was the whole story of the season. Now it's different. Like Nebraska's been on the bottom. Uh, it has struggled in ways that no one expected. Um, and now it's getting up off the canvas. And they've got a guy who won all those games back in his college days, helping them get them, get off the canvas. And so it's real optimism. Because it's hard to be optimistic unless you've experienced some hard things. And I think for a whole generation of Husker fans, they just never knew anything but winning. Basketball-wise, Nebraska has an unbelievably loyal fan base um, that has never really gotten much for that loyalty. Uh, they, you know, they're top ten in the nation in attendance. That kind of speaks to how many things there are to do in Nebraska. But, but uh, on the flip side of the coin, they've been extremely loyal. They were very loyal to Tim Miles, the guy that Fred Hoiberg replaced. Um, But Fred Hoiberg is the first coach uh, that Nebraska basketball has had where you're like, that guy's done it before. He's done it at a place where it's bigger than it is at Nebraska, and he knows how to recruit. The the, the most fascinating thing about Hoiberg to this point is that he – if if, if if Isaiah Roby stays in the NBA draft, Nebraska will return somewhere around 2% of their scoring, their rebounding from last year. He has added 11 players, brand new players to the roster, uh, including uh, the Mr. Basketball from the state of Ohio, um, which no one would have imagined, you know, Tim Miles doing three months ago. So he's completely overhauled the roster um, in a month. Um, He's done all that pretty quietly, but, uh, but, you know, people here are not sure how, what to do with this. That would, Nebraska fans have never had a program like this. Um, you know, basketball around here, if you get one four-star recruit, 
and everybody's sort of like, wow, why? Why'd you come to Nebraska? It's completely changed. And so I don't even think fans know how to handle it yet because it's so different. And Hoiberg is so far advanced in terms of his program management already than his predecessors that um, people are just giddy. You know, it's like every single day that there was a point for two weeks where I think they added like eight players and nobody knew what was coming. Like people in the media didn't know half these guys. And when, and the last one was the Ohio basketball guy. I don't know what his name, Samari Curtis, or I think that's Samari Carter. Nobody knew he was coming. And then he, you know, he put his thing on Twitter and, and, you know, he kind of clicked on it like this guy's, this guy was Mr. Basketball in Ohio. (laughs) So you're just sort of blown away by some of the things they're able to do on such a, such a quick basis. So yeah, the optimism here is off the charts. Um, They have a really good coaching combination. Um, Ohio state had the best coaching combination until Urban Meyer retired. I mean, Holtman's a great coach. And so um, Ohio state was number one and then Urban retired. So now they're not. And it was Michigan. I don't know. Some people would say now it's uh, Michigan state, but I I think we're down to the last couple of years of Mark D'Antonio, maybe the last year. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, it, you know, there was a time you think about just some of the people who have left the Big Ten, you know, even that, uh, you know, you think about Wisconsin, Paul Grit, Chris has done a lot of good things, but, you know, they still miss Bo Ryan basketball wise. And oh, yeah. I, I'm not so sure, you know, I mean, Purdue, I think, is a lot is a lot like Nebraska a little bit, you know, and like a really good, young, sharp football coach and a basketball coach who's kind of done it before, you know, and Matt Painter. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. It's an interesting thing to think about. Um yeah, that Samari Curtis is is the guy who uh, who picked Nebraska, the Ohio Mr. Basketball. So, um, well, listen, Sam, you do it as well as anybody out there. I enjoy reading your Thank stuff. You. This has been um, this has been fantastic. People, make sure you're you're checking in on uh, on Sam's coverage with the Omaha World Herald. So, Sam, we'll catch up again down the line. I, I just have a feeling it's going to be a really really good one, fifth week of the season, and it, I, yeah. I like those matches like that. That's a good time of the year, right? It's still early. But it's not so early that teams haven't had a chance to figure it out. And I think we are we are going to learn a lot about both programs with Nebraska and Ohio State when they meet in week five. And I think that game is going to go a long way toward determining uh, who might win the Big Ten this year. It, it will go a long way. Michigan's going to have their say. And, if, again, if they can't do it now, when are they going to do it? Yeah. So, like – and Nebraska played Michigan like six times in a row starting in 2021 or whatever. And nobody, nobody here like, I mean, there's no love lost between Nebraska and Michigan. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> Sam, thanks so much for the help. All right. You bet. All right. So thanks to Sam for that tremendous writer, tremendous guy. Um, thanks. Uh, thanks for his time. Um, let's, 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 let's dive in here. Um, with another couple questions, Scott Duda, um, and we'll let this lead into our Michigan discussion. We'll do Michigan next with Aaron McMahon. Scott Duda, why on earth does the national media love Michigan as much as they appear to? They've done nothing for a decade except lose big games. Harbaugh clearly didn't bring his magic to Ann Arbor like he had with the 49ers and Stanford. I think it's reasonable to keep expecting it. Aaron and I are going to talk about this. We know Michigan lost a lot on defense. I think it's reasonable to keep expecting it. And Harbaugh 
really has done everything at Michigan except beat Ohio State. <clears throat> and then what else he had, the other things he hasn't done, like get to the playoff, are because he hasn't beaten Ohio State. Or if he doesn't look good in bowl games, it's because they lose to Ohio State and it ruins the end of their season. Um, I think people know how much good coaching matters. He hasn't been as good of a coach. I think he's had trouble getting the right staff in place. Um, he's changed coordinators. Uh, he's, he liked to see that he has done a good job with Don Brown defensively. Offensively, um, they've had trouble figuring it out. Much more trouble than I ever would have expected. So um, that that is what surprises me. And, and, and Aaron and I are going to talk about this. Nikki Unders, our guy who was on a couple weeks ago, is it just me? Or is this year's Big Ten schedule the toughest in quite some time? The Nebraska-Maryland stretch looks rough outside of Rutgers. Every conference opponent is capable of an upset. Let's just run this quick. Again, we will do some kind of schedule thing to a greater degree later. Indiana is the initial Big Ten game. That's week three at Indiana. I think it's – could I think they could get – I think – you, you, you're going to enter that game, don't ramble, less than 100% confident that Ohio State will win. Like, it's not going to be 50-50. It's not going to be even that uh, 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 Indiana has a 25% chance. But I think you're going to enter that game believing it's not impossible for Indiana to win when there have been times when you've gone to Indiana and believed it was impossible. Now, Kevin Wilson, maybe the greatest prediction of my Ohio State career. That was wrong, because most of mine are. I picked Indiana to beat Ohio State in 2015, and Indiana went up throwing a pass in the end zone, last play of the game that would have tied it. Um, that's what I think about Indiana. Then, the, then they go Miami, Ohio, out of conference. Then they get – now we start the Big Ten slate in earnest. At Nebraska, clearly a chance for an upset. Michigan State home, yes, a chance. Northwestern on the road on a Friday night, yes, a chance. Wisconsin home, yes, a chance. Maryland at home, less of a chance. Josh Jackson, Virginia Tech transfer is going to be the, the quarterback for Maryland. They've had some weird injuries over the year. And by the way, they should have beaten them last year. I can't remember the guy's name. We'll research it later. Remember that freshman running back from Maryland who went wild? So yes, chance for an upset. At Rutgers, Rutgers stinks. Then Penn State, Michigan. There are not many breathers in here. Honestly, if you think Indiana's not going to get them, but then you get the other eight in a row. There's one breather in there. And things pile on top of each other. So, yes, there's no major non-conference schedule here. This is a very across-the-board difficult Big Ten schedule. When we analyze the schedule, I'll get into it more. It might be as hard of a Big Ten schedule as Ohio State has, has ever faced. And we know there's some changes with Michigan State and Penn State and some other teams. I'm telling you, this is not going to be easy. And just like I think the Browns are going to go 12-4, and four, a lot of that's based on schedule. When I sound the alarm on 9-3, and three, a lot of it's based on schedule. They don't get Illinois. Look at their West games. They don't get Illinois. They don't get Minnesota. Purdue just beat them, so it's like you... They get, they get the tough teams. They don't have to play Iowa. But there's three ranked teams in the West in the preseason. They play two of those three, and then they also play the defending West champion. This is a real schedule. There are real questions here. So let's get now into the Michigan discussion. It's the team that you guys said was the number one challenger, the number one 
team to worry about in the, in the Big Ten. Let's break it down. The Wolverines with Aaron McMahon of MLive.com. What Aaron and I think of Michigan and also what Michigan is thinking about Ohio State without Urban Meyer. All right, joined by Aaron McMahon from NLive here to talk to Wolverines. Um, Aaron, it is, are there good vibes around Michigan right now? Harbaugh's won at least 10 games, three out of four years. Are people feeling good? Is there any impatience with Michigan of like, okay, let's take the next step? Or, or how do you think people are, are viewing the Wolverines right now? Yeah, it's a good question, a good topic, I guess. And I'll, I'll use the same phrase I've been using the last couple of years. But I think it's cautious optimism. You know, I think – you know, Michigan's, you know, had the talent for a long time. They, you know, they're, they're in the top 10 a lot of these rankings. They return a lot of guys here on offense in 2019. So I think there's a feeling, you know, this Michigan team can finally get over the hump. Um, you know, like you said, they've won 10 games, three of the Harbaugh's last four years. They've been right there. They were right there last year up until that loss against Ohio State. And I think, you know, generally speaking, I think the fan base believes that they can eventually get there. Um, but, again, you know, it's going to come down to winning those key marquee games. They've got several on the schedule again this year, Notre Dame and then obviously Ohio State. Um, and it's going to come down to winning those games. And that, that's been that kind of, you know, Harbaugh's Achilles heel up until this point. We know Michigan lost two just really high-level players defensively in Devin Bush and Rashawn Gary. Could, will this Michigan defense be as good? It was so good last year until the Ohio State game for the most part. Can this defense be as good, or do you expect some kind of step back when you lose two guys like that? Yeah, yeah, it's a, that's a good question, too. I, you know, I, I think there will be some type of drop-off. I think it's it's hard to kind of duplicate what Michigan's been able to do the last couple of years. You know, Don Brown's obviously their, their defensive coordinator is really highly highly regarded. You know, they love him here in Ann Arbor. You know, Jim loves working with him. Um, but I, I, I think reasonably expectations-wise, I think you, you have to expect some type of drop-off. You know, I don't think you replace a Devin Bush just like that. You know, I know Michigan's really high on Josh Ross, who they expect to fill the middle linebacker role. Um, they've got some you know, young, impressive defensive ends coming in or that, that got some playing time last year that they think can be very good down the line. Um, but, you know, for, to, you know, to lose Rashawn Gary, lose Chase Winovich, lose Devin Bush, uh, and expect to be a top five defense in the nation is, I think, difficult to do. Now, could it be done? You know, absolutely. Don Brown's done it every, all three years. He's been at Michigan. His scheme, I think, fits the, the way they recruit and the players they bring in. Um, but they got a lot of pieces to replace. And I think, you know, especially early on, they're going to be, you know, I think doing some things differently. It sounds like they're going to play a little bit more zone than they have in the past couple of years, which I think is music to some Michigan fans' ears. Um, but you know, it's, it's, I don't know. I, it remains to be seen. You know, they, we saw cracks at times last year with the Michigan defense. You Michigan, obviously the Ohio state game, you know, they struggled in the, the bowl game against Florida. They're, um, the first half against Notre Dame, the first half against Northwestern, you saw some cracks. We saw them. They were able to, um, you know, they, they were able to come back and, and, and fix those things. Um, uh, but we'll see, you know, I, time will tell. I, I do, I do expect them to be good. Um, will they be great? I, you know, I don't know. Tough. To, I can think it's too early to say at this point. I, when you talk about, I, I was going to ask about that zone defense thing because I've been, I think, writing your stories on that. How much of a direct correlation do you think there is between the decision to maybe play some more zone and that Ohio State game when it seemed like Ohio State had a game plan to use some of their speedy guys against Michigan's man defense and win some one-on-one matchups? How much is that tied to it, and how much of a shock to the system really now when you when there's you know a whole off season to evaluate it? How much of a shock to the system was that Ohio State loss? 
Yeah, I mean, we'll start with the loss. I think it was a huge shock. You know, I think I don't. I think every, when you spoke to the Michigan players and the coaching staff in the week going into that game, they generally thought they were going to win the game. You know, you saw you heard a guarantee from Cron Higdon, although I thought you know I thought it was a little forced. But the, the players and coaching staff, I think, generally felt good going into that game in 2018, uh, more so than even 2017. You know, going into the 2017 game, you had injuries at quarterback, you had some uncertainty. Um, you know, even though it was at home, that you know Michigan was still, um, I think, younger offensively. Their offensive line was struggling at the time. Last year was a different story. I mean, they were riding high. They'd won 10 straight games. They thought they generally thought they were going to win that game. So for them to go in there, and I don't think the offense was bad, uh, but for the way the defense kind of you know fell apart there, I think was a shock to the system. But like I mentioned earlier, you know, there were there were, there were signs that that was that was potentially coming. And I think um, you know, and Don Brown's been criticized the last couple of years for not playing a ton of zone. That they they're, they're, they're pretty much a full, you know, man press defense. That's what Donald Brown likes to play. That's what he knows. That's what he preaches. Um, but, you know, he, and I can remember this, you know, after the Outback Bowl in, in January of 2018, after the 2017 season, Don Brown was getting criticism for why, why don't you play more zone? And he, he basically said, well, I'm doing what I want to do. This is my system. And if, if anything, you know, if, if, if I get, you know, an edict from Harbaugh or anyone else to do something differently, then maybe it's time for me to leave. So I think for some degree, I do think the Ohio State game was a, you know, a, a coming down moment for, for Don Brown and the defense, a realization that they can't win. Um, they may not be able to win every big game, you know, with, with the defense that they play. So I think that's forced him to make some changes. Now, I think the personnel that they have that they're returning this year is, is forcing them to make some changes as well. They've got some speedier guys. Um, they got they got more athletic guys than they did last year. So I think that probably helps. Um, but it, it's going to be interesting to see. You know, this isn't – I don't know how much uh, zone they're actually going to play, but Don Brown did say we spoke to him – you know, at the late end of spring, uh, and he made it sound like they're new some things a little bit differently this year. He didn't go into too many details, obviously, um, but he has realized, and I think the Michigan defense has realized that uh, in those big games, if they need to adapt or change the way they play, they're, they're going to do it. Offensively, Josh Gaddis is in as the offensive coordinator. Um, I know you guys have been covering the heck out of that up there. I, I don't know how much Ohio State fans know about this. Can you sort of give us the baseline of – just how big of a deal you think it is that that Jim Harbaugh brought in an offensive coordinator like Josh Gaddis? Yeah, for someone on the ground here, I mean, it's a big deal for for Jim Harbaugh to kind of hand over the reins to the offense to someone, some one person. You know, since Harbaugh's gotten here, it's been a combination of him running the offense. He's had offensive coordinators in the past, but he's also kind of dipped his toe in there. He's had final say on play calls. Um, from the sound of things so far. He has literally given Josh Gaddis the, the keys to the offensive vehicle. He, J- Jim Harbaugh has kind of removed himself from the play calling. He's removed himself from the playbook. Um, he is basically Josh Gaddis' Josh Gattis's show, which is interesting in and of itself because Gaddis has never been a full-time play caller. You know, he was a co-offensive coordinator last year in Alabama. However, he wasn't, turning, he wasn't in charge of the play calling. I think he helped out in, in some capacity. Um, so this is kind of it's, it's new for Jim Harbaugh. It's new for Josh Gaddis. I think they're both kind of, you know, figuring out at this point. Uh, it sounds like it's be more of a spread from what we've been told and what we've kind of seen that they're not going to huddle at all this year. Um, it's all going to be out of shotgun. It's all going to be uh, kind of, you know, it's going to be quicker than what we've seen in previous years. Um, you know, we did for, for it, it was interesting this year because we got we got to see Michigan more this spring than we did all of last year. We had there was an open practice and then there was a spring game. Uh, they were taking more shots on the field, a lot more crossing routes over the middle. A lot, just a lot more throwing the football, and I expect that's what we'll see uh, this fall with, with Shea Pedersen back. Michigan's got a bunch of the receivers returning, top two, you know, pass catchers from last year. 
so it's going to be, I think, a different look to this Michigan offense this fall for Ohio State fans and anyone else watching this team that's kind of gotten used to the pro style, use the running back, use the fullback, use the tight ends over the middle that we've seen under Jim Harbaugh the previous four years. Why? Why now? Why did Harbaugh do this? <laughs> that, that's a good question. I've asked him that a couple times now. What you know, kind of what you know, what preface this change or what, what, why, why change now? And he hasn't really answered the question directly. You know, he's he's praised Josh Gaddis. He, he said that you know he's someone that he's been watching for several years now, um, going back to Josh Gaddis's days at Western Michigan four or five years ago. So, barely Gaddis is someone that Harbaugh's wanted to add to his staff for a while now. But again, the answer to why now or what prompted this is, is kind of unclear because I can remember, you know, after the Peach Bowl, after Michigan got slaughtered by, you know, Florida, um, Harbaugh was asked the question about coaching staff changes. And at that point, he said, you know, I don't anticipate any changes. We're going to move forward. We might refine a few things, but we're not going to make any drastic changes because they, they felt they were on the cusp of something. Uh, but, you know, a few weeks later, it, you know, he kind of, it seemed like he changed reverse course, you know, and, and um, you know, Pep Hamilton was out. Uh, he brought in Josh Gaddis, and what prompted that remains kind of uh, uncertain at this point. Aaron, i got to tell you, it's just so interesting to me because I remember thinking when Jim Harbaugh got to Michigan that this was going to be an interesting sort of, um, not clash of offenses, but just that Jim Harbaugh went about offense different than Urban Meyer did. That Urban Meyer obviously was more spread, Jim Harbaugh was more pro style. That's simplistic. But now, here we are, Ryan Day at Ohio State is going – some more pro style with they want to throw the ball. They're getting away from the running quarterback. They're still going to be in shotgun. And I think a lot of spread formations, but maybe with some more pro style plays called from those formations, but Ohio state is shifting more pro style. And now, as you mentioned, Michigan is shifting more towards a spread. It's just a, a fascinating um, dichotomy to me that, that both these programs, these two rivals were different from each other, and now both of them are sort of sort of shifting the opposite direction. It, yeah, it is. It, it, it is fascinating. I think maybe, you know, I, and I don't. Again, I don't know what problem. It's interesting because Harbaugh's for for the four years he's been at Michigan here in Ann Arbor, he's always you know he's always focused on running the football and you know, throwing when they needed to, um, using the fullback and, and everything else. And now they're, they're you know, you're right, they're going away with it. They're kind of. I wouldn't be surprised if this Michigan offense looks very similar to the one that Ohio State ran last year. They're going to try and throw the ball a lot. It was it was evident in the spring game last month. We watched uh, Shea Patterson was throwing the ball a ton around. Uh, they they like Shea Patterson in his skill set and his versatility. Uh, we saw that last year. But and and keep in mind, at the end of last season, after the Ohio State game, after the bowl game, you know, a lot of Michigan fans were critical of the way that Shea Patterson was used. They thought they could throw the ball a little bit more. They should have thrown the ball a little bit more. Uh, a couple of the receivers were more vocal. Um, you know, Nico Collins and Tariq Black thought that they should have gotten the football a little bit more than they did last year. Uh, so you know, I think all of that combined uh, with the Ohio State loss, with the way the bowl game ended. Uh, it seems like it, it shifted, you know, the way Harbaugh's thinking or the way he decided to, to, you know, take things. And again, you know, so far, you know, he's been all hands off. He's kind of acting as CEO. In fact, several assistant coaches have kind of called him the CEO at this point of this football team. Whereas, you know, he's not necessarily doing much teaching. He's kind of sitting back learning and, and watching and kind of managing things, which is, which is different because like, like I said, even, you know, previous years and Harbaugh has had no CA can, um, I can remember Tim Drevno a couple years ago. They had Pat Hamilton was still on the staff. At one point, there were three of them calling plays, and Harbaugh kind of had the, the final say on things. So it was a little bit of a muddled mess. That was 2017 when Michigan finished 8-5. and five. So you know, Harbaugh has shown an ability to adapt, but this is by far the, the furthest he's, he's adapted since he's arrived in Ann Arbor. 
All right, Aaron. So let's let's get into what I actually <laughs> said. I was gonna. I called you for. I'm just so interested. It's it's a learning experience for me, um, and I think most people feel this. It's just there's nobody better to talk to than a team beat writer to figure out what's going on with mm-hmm. the team. So I just I just love conversations like this. But so Aaron, from from your perspective, and I don't know if it's anything that you have talked about at all with anybody around the Michigan program. So just your opinion, um, unless you want to throw something else in. But like. What do you think it means for Michigan that Urban Meyer is gone? Do you, what do you sort of expect to maybe change or not change in this rivalry now that Ohio State has a new head coach? No, it's a, it's a good question. I, I think I wrote about this the day after um, Urban announced his retirement or stepping down. And, I, you know, it, it's hard to say at this point because, you know, obviously no, none of the teams have played a game or whatever. But I think in some ways it opens a door for some of these other Big Ten East teams, including, you know, including Michigan. You know, for, for so long now, Ohio State and Urban Meyer have kind of dominated the recruiting landscape. You know, more times than not, they've beaten Michigan out when it comes to recruiting classes. Um, they've gotten, you know, you know, more of the star power kids than, than maybe Michigan has. So I think from from a recruiting standpoint, I think it helps. I think it should, in theory, it should help. You know, Jim Harbaugh kind of uh, and Michigan kind of cement their their footing here with recruiting. Uh, well, I mean, time will tell. Obviously, I think it's you're not going to see the fruits of the labor for another couple of years. Uh, but it, I, in some ways, it, it opens a door for Michigan, I think, and some others to um, you know close that gap because so for so. I mean, everyone here in Ann Arbor knows. You know, they lost seven straight to Ohio State. Harbaugh is 0 and 4 against the Buckeyes. He hasn't been able to beat them. And most of the fans here in Ann Arbor know they, to get over that hump, to win the Big Ten East, get in the college football playoff, they've got to beat Ohio State. Um, so I, I think with, with Urban Meyer gone, Ryan Day on board, um, folks realize here, I think Harbaugh realizes behind the scenes, I don't think he's going to say this, but I, I do believe that he realizes this is the time. You know, he's, there's an opportunity here. You know, Michigan has done a good job recruiting the last year or two. They've, got, they've developed some, some young guys on offense that they really like. Defense has been solid. Um, this is the year, I think, for Michigan to. I think they look at it. this is the opportunity for them to, to kind of flip the tables here and, 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 you know, finally end their losing streak. The preseason magazines are starting to come out. Athlon Sports is out with theirs. Um, their preseason rankings, they said, are, are their sort of prediction on how they think it's going to look at the end of the year. They have Michigan four in the playoff as the Big Ten champ and Ohio State five. When you see national places like that and this is just the beginning we have all this build up to the season but when you see michigan in a national magazine pick to win the big 10 and make the college football playoff and finish ahead of ohio state do you nod your head and say yeah that makes sense to me or are there parts of you that say uh man i don't know that might be expecting too much yeah i'm leaning toward the latter you know keep in mind though last time last year athlon had michigan i think finishing six and they ended up finishing 14th and they're kind of out of the big 10 title picture obviously before the after the Ohio State game. So, you know, I, I think some, there's some merit to it. I do think Michigan offensively will be a lot better team than they were last year. Um, defensively, it's, they have question marks. But, I, you know, w- with the way Michigan recruits, the way that their schedule kind of pans out this year, they get Ohio State, they get Michigan State, they get Notre Dame all in Ann Arbor this year. Um, and, and with the Big Ten West kind of down, they, they, do get, they do get Wisconsin in the game. I think they can win as well. Um, it, you know, I think they'll be there whether they win the Big Ten East and get in the playoffs. I, I don't know. I'm hesitant to say that, you know, because it's, it's one of those things where I, until they beat Ohio State, I'm not going to pick them and beat Ohio State. Um, you know, they, they do have a, uh, you know, it's a difficult schedule. Notre Dame, obviously, it's in, our, in Ann Arbor, but it's, it's going to be a difficult game. Uh, we'll see. You know, I, I think they could be there whether they get there. Uh, you know, I don't know. If I, if, if, I, if I was a betting man, I had to put money down right now, I'd say they would not get in the playoffs. 
But again, you know, if, if, if a game you know changes one or two ways at the beat Ohio State, then things change. But talent-wise, I think they're there. It's just a matter of beating those, winning those big games, beating Notre Dame, beating Ohio State, like I said earlier. And if they are, if they do, then I, I think they're that they're in. Aaron, I've I've written some things uh, over the years. I don't know if defending Jim Harbaugh is the right phraseology, but just to me, whenever there's criticism of Harbaugh or people think he's on the hot seat, as an outsider, I just think, man, you know, Michigan just lived through Rich Rodriguez and Brady Hoke. If we're in a world where double-digit wins three out of four years um, is is putting you on the hot seat or whatever, I just I don't understand that. Is wh- where do you think it is? Obviously, you know that this a thousand times better than I do. Would Michigan fans, I mean, if Michigan basically keeps winning 10 games a year but isn't a playoff team, isn't beating Ohio State, are Michigan fans at some point going to get tired of that and and really say, hey, we've got to get somebody else? Or, you know, is that in in this world where the SEC dominates everything and it's hard for anybody north of the Mason-Dixon line to really make a playoff push? You know, is 10 wins a year for Michigan actually, you know, sort of pretty good? You know, it's funny you bring that up because I think this time last year, I was in the local Barnes & Noble here at Ann Arbor checking out. I bought a book or something, a magazine. I'm checking out. And the, I think it must have been a magazine because the, the, the person checking me out, the cashier guy goes, you know, it's about Harbaugh needs to start winning more games. So it, 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 it's a complicated thing because I, I think, like you said, contextually, I don't think you can do much better. You know, record-wise, he's been solid. You know, they've won 10 games three in the last four years. They've gotten the bowl games every year. They've been right there when it comes to the Big Ten title picture, but they can't get over the hump. And it comes down, like I said, it comes down to winning that, that one or two, those two, one or two big games every year. Um, I, I think the fans here are, they've been patient with him. You know, when Jim, keep in mind when Jim, Jim Harbaugh came to Ann Arbor, and I think most folks outside of Ann Arbor probably know this just based on the, you know, the media he received and the attention he was, he was getting. But, you know, he's treated as a savior. And in some ways, he kind of still is. You know, he's Ann Arbor's son. His, you know, he grew up playing here. His father, play, you know, was a coach here. Um, you know, his family still lives here. He lives on the street from his father right now. So it's very much a, it's very much a wholesome family Michigan thing. He's that Michigan man that so many you know folks around here talk about all the time. Um, and for him, and he, largely he's been successful. Like you said, you know, three ten win seasons. He's done really well. Season ticket sales are through the roof. Michigan, you know, business is booming. They still sell every home game. Ratings are you know good on TV. Uh, so it's hard to argue against the business side of things. Um, but again, you know, it's gonna, his, I think his time at Michigan will be fully defined by how he finishes, you know, these next couple of years that he's entering his fifth year of his seven year contract, how he does against, you know, Ohio State and whether he can finally get Michigan over the hump. Because, like you said, it's been a long time since they've they won the Big Ten Championship in 2004. They haven't been, in, you know, national title discussion really since the late 90s. Uh, so I think for him to be successful for the for the folks here, I think to deem him a success, he's going to have to get back in that in that, in that discussion. And I think he will. You know, I, I think eventually it'll happen. I don't foresee, and I get this question all the time, whether it's on national radio shows or what, the like, about whether, like you said, the hot seat. And I, I don't think he is. You know, he has the support of the administration here. Um, athletic director Ward Manuel used to play football with him here. Uh, the president loves him. Uh, you know, largely this program is clean. They haven't had too many off the field issues. Uh, so it's 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 one of those things where Michigan. I think they're patiently waiting for the, you know, them to get over the hump, and I, I think it will eventually come. You know, whether it's next year, whether it's a couple years on the line, um, I think most folks around here are are okay with waiting. You know, it's funny to me, Aaron. They're, they're really from the outside. Again, it sort of feels to me like 
The guy is an alum, was a quarterback there, played for Bo, succeeded in college elsewhere, then went to the NFL, went to a Super Bowl, then comes back. It, to me, it's almost like if Jim Harbaugh can't win at the highest, highest level, meaning playoff, meaning winning the Big Ten, then part of my instinct is if he can't do it, nobody could. And nobody can. You're right. And yeah. That you just have to adjust and your expectations, just like Nebraska. Just maybe like just the idea that you know what? Maybe maybe you're not really in position in the modern college football world to be a national power, and that you know people that and I don't mean this critically at all because I don't know the answer, but like nobody in Iowa says Kirk Ferentz should be fired because Iowa doesn't make the college football playoff. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm not saying Michigan's Iowa, Michigan's above Iowa, but I, I don't know, Aaron. If if he can't do it, yeah. I just don't, I can't imagine who could. That well, that's my argument too. Yeah, if you just, you know say Harbaugh, you know goes eight and five or you know eight and five again this year, nine and three, whatever you want, whatever underachieving records you want to give to him, you know, and it's you know folks are up in arms or whatever the case may be, but. You know, should you want to fire? Who do you replace with them? You know, who do you, who do you find that has the the mystique, the history, the you know the success? You know, elsewhere, like you mentioned, you're successful at the NFL, you're successful at Stanford. Pretty much everywhere he's been coached, he's, he's been successful. So, you know, do, do, can you find anyone better? Will you find anyone better? That's a question you're going to ask yourself if you if you want to, you know, eventually you know remove yourself. And right now, I, I think there's it, it's a small sliver at this point. The fan base has largely been been behind him. Uh, and you're right, you know, maybe Michigan isn't set for success. It's been a long time since they've been at the pinnacle of college football. They've always been right there for the, for the large parts, you know, for the last, last four or five years. Um, but, yeah, yeah, you don't know. You, you wonder, you know, Michigan, is, they're, they're interesting. When it comes to recruiting philosophy, they, they do tend to, um, you know, try and, you know, get the higher echelon kids. They, they don't take a ton of shortcuts when it comes to recruiting. And I'm not saying Ohio State or you know, other schools do, but there's, there's a segment of the, audio, of the schools out there that, that do, you know, so Michigan does a very good job of, they try to attract top tier kids. Um, they're trying to do it the clean, right way. And I think Harbaugh largely has done that. Um, but is it enough to get you over the top? You know, I, I don't know. Just real quick detour to recruiting here, just because I know it's such an interesting topic for a lot of people. Go J.J. Ahead. McCarthy, obviously a big get for Michigan, a quarterback. Ohio State got their 2021 guy at quarterback as well in Kyle McCord. Just generally, when you look at what Harbaugh has done, what they have so far in the 2020 and 2021 classes, you sort of just covered it. But, like, is he doing well enough in recruiting? Is he recruiting well? Or did you maybe think um, he would even do a little better? Yeah, well, this past year, I thought this 2019 class was, I think, one of his best classes. And, and obviously, we, we have to let it pan out and see. But I thought it was one of his best classes he's brought in yet since he's gotten here. Uh, seven, eight, 18 was a little downer. At the, or 17 was down. 18 was a little bit down. Uh, but this 19 class was good. Uh, 20 looks to be okay. Uh, 21, I think, is too early to gauge. You've only got a couple guys. But, yeah, McCar- that, and you bring up McCarthy, and that's, that's a good point. The quarterbacks, that Arbaugh, when, when he first got here in Ann Arbor, you know, in 2014, that was one of his, obviously, his, Highlights, you know, he, they thought he'd be able to bring, to bring in a quarterback and develop him and turn him into the next, you know, whoever, Pete Manning, whoever you want to, you know, relate. I mean, and that was that's one of the things Harbaugh hasn't really been able to do since he's gotten here. He's brought in some, you know, collective collection of guys. Uh, every year there's been some type of quarterback competition where it goes down to the wire and they finally decide on a guy. Uh, but it, it almost seemed like every quarterback Harbaugh's used here, and everybody's been kind of looking over his shoulder. They, they've been wondering, you know, oh, God, if I screw up, am I going to be, you know, benched or whatever? Because Harbaugh likes to preach competition. That's the one thing he always says. You're in and you're out when it comes to spring or fall camp. 
Everything is a competition. Everything is determined every day. Nothing is set in stone. I think that's irked some folks, you know, some players. I can remember Wilton Spate, the former quarterback who transferred to UCLA this past year. He thought, you know, it should have been his spot going into going into 20, uh, 2018, and it wasn't. He ended up winning it, but it wasn't. Or in 2017, he ended up winning it, but, you know, it, it, was, it was a difficult task. It came down the final week. Um, so, you know, with, with, for the first time, I think, going into fall, this is the first time with Shea Patterson back that Michigan under Harbaugh can say that they have a quarterback set in stone as a starter. Um, so I think that, that, should, that should be, you know, bode well for, I guess, this, this year. But, again, going forward, it's going to be a mystery. They've got several quarterbacks lined up behind Patterson. They've brought in um, some guys they like. Dylan McCaffrey is an impressive guy. He played a little bit last year. Um, they got, like you said, you mentioned, uh, you know, McCarthy. They got J.D. Johnson for 2020, a kid from Arizona. He's a four-star from Arizona, outside of Arizona. Uh, so they got quarterbacks, but that's been kind of the, the storyline with Harbaugh, too, the under-the-radar type thing. He hasn't really gotten that Heisman candidate quarterback that some folks thought he'd be able to do here at Michigan. I will tell you, Aaron, that if, if, if when Jim Harbaugh was hired, if someone would have said four years from now, there's going to be a quarterback in the Big Ten who throws 50 touchdown passes and breaks every conference passing record. Will he be from Ohio State or Michigan? I would have bet Michigan. And instead, Dwayne Haskins ends up being an Ohio State guy who ends up sort of changing the Ohio State offense. So I agree with that. I, I thought that. I remember remember when, when they were bringing in the guys. Who, who was there? There were college guys, big-time college guys who were, like, hanging out with Harbaugh, like, the first spring that he was hired. It was almost like they were coming for quarterback training just to hang out with Jim Harbaugh. And to me, it was like, oh man, this is the beginning of this. This is like, he is going to get like the best pro style. I thought he would get the mm-hmm. best pro style quarterback basically in every recruiting class. And it, it really kind of hasn't gone that way. But you mentioned a couple guys, Aaron, who, who, who do you think will be that guy? It's all, you know, Ohio state has Justin mm-hmm. Fields as a, as a transfer now, I've been a little surprised that he's played so many transfers at quarterback. And obviously Shea Patterson seems to have worked out pretty well. But if you look at a guy on the roster now or one of the guys in the recruiting pipeline, is it McCaffrey? Is it Joe Milton? Who is it that you think could be that next developed from the ground up Michigan quarterback that really maybe Jim Harbaugh takes to the next level? Yeah, I will say. Originally, I think we all thought it was going to be Brandon Peters, you know, kid, yep. kid the guy from Avon, Indiana. He was a four-star recruit from a couple of years ago. He ended up announcing this summer that he was he was transferring, so he's out out of the picture. He started a few. Ohio State fans probably remember him. He started a few games in, in twenty uh, in twenty seventeen, uh, but Michigan kind of they soured on him. You know, they brought in Shea Patterson last fall, and he kind of passed him up. And Patterson ended up being the guy. Uh, but I think moving forward, you know, aside from Patterson, who obviously was the grad tra- or the transfer from Ole Miss, but I, I think it's going to right now it's going to be McCaffrey. You know, he was he was a guy that was recruited by Harbaugh. Uh, he's a Harbaugh type guy. He's 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 athletic. He's he's got the arm. He showed flashes last year being good. Um, you know, he'll have full two after you know after this year with Patterson, he'll have two two full years left remaining. In the offense, he's he's closed. I think the number two at this point. Um, so I think McCaffrey is going to be the guy, and if it's not, then it's I don't I don't know if Milton has it at this point. The guy's got a strong arm, but he hasn't shown an um, you know ability to kind of be accurate with it. Uh, but again, and then you mentioned the two guys in the pipeline kind of going forward. They got another quarterback that came in this year as well from Rio, Nevada, four-star Kate McNamara. Harbaugh likes him as well, but again, he's you know fourth in the depth chart at this point, so he's got a ways to go. But I think right immediately it's going to be McCaffrey. I think after you know Patterson will start this year, I, I think he'll be the, the clear-cut you know, number one guy for most of the year. Know, barring injury or some other thing, um, and then McCaffrey will be the guy of two full years of eligibility remaining. Uh, he's been in the system now a couple of years. He's gone through it. He's he's played a few games, 
he will be uh, Harbaugh's guy in, in 2020. Aaron McMahon from MLive.com. I told you we'd go like 10 or 15 minutes. I made you go half an hour. I could go I could go another two hours talking about this stuff. But it's only May. I probably could too. It's only May, so we'll hold off. We'll sprinkle it in. We've got we we can't get do it all at once. So um I appreciate you taking time. Um I'm sure we'll check in again before the start of the season. And uh again, I just it, it's one of those things I sort of try to remind Ohio State fans at times, like, you know. You know, that that spot, that fourth down spot from JT Barrett, that's how close Jim Harbaugh was um, to beating Ohio State. So it was funny. He was he's been he's been close more than once. And then last year, the year that everybody thought Michigan was going to win, they get sort of their doors blown off. But really, I I do think if Ohio State fans um, have a feeling of like, boy, you know, Ohio State still dominates Michigan. Yes, you look at the scoreboard and you look at what Urban Meyer did seven and zero in his career. But there were. There were some games when Michigan was right there, and, and at some point, I don't know when, but Aaron, I think in our lifetimes, Michigan will beat Ohio State, right? So, I mean, everyone always said that. Ohio, yeah. Ohio State fans are always like, oh, yeah, everyone thought it was last year. Everyone thought it was last year, and you were wrong, you were wrong, you were wrong. Like, some point, it's going to happen, and it, it is interesting. Ryan Day in year one, Michigan, when you look at the roster, seems like it has a, a, a team that at least has a shot, um, will have a shot again. Uh, at the end of November. Yeah, and certainly seems the national people seem to think the same thing. So, we'll, I mean, we'll see come November. We'll see where these teams are, I guess. I, I'm curious to see how Michigan's defense, re, you know, responds from losing so many guys last year. I'm curious to see what this offense looks like in the fall. You know, we've seen bits and pieces, but again, you know, they still got to put it all together and play with it. Uh, so it's going to be it's going to be a different looking Michigan team, I think, for Ohio State fans this this November. Uh, it's going to be interesting. I think Michigan will benefit, obviously, playing it in Ann Arbor. But again, you know they haven't beaten them in, in seven or eight years now. It's been a long time, so it's you know it's, they got to get used to, to doing this again, and well, we'll see if they, they got in on this fall. Aaron, thank you so much for your time. I'm sure we'll catch up again down the road. Yeah, absolutely, Doug. All right, thanks to Aaron McMahon. We will bring up Bob Flounders from Penn Live to talk Penn State here at the end. But Scott Duda, always with the uh, interesting off-topic questions, what is the most slices of pizza you've eaten in one sitting? Mine is 17 at Scott Duda. So we have to establish some parameters here. We want to get to a poll question that has shaken me to my core. First of all, when I'm talking pizza slices, we have to agree, right, that if he's eaten 17, you've got to be talking triangle slices. Like a, a large pizza is cut into eight triangle slices that has to be the uniform way that we discuss this. So, Scott, I did not ask you about this in a reply to your tweet. Maybe you can explain it to me and make sure I'm clear. If you're saying like 17 squares of a square-cut pizza and people who are loyal listeners here know what I think about square-cut pizza, I can't have a discussion. I'm assuming you're telling me that your high for pizza slices in a sitting is two full pizzas plus one slice of the third pizza. Because it's eight plus eight is 16. One more 17. That's what you said. If I find out that you mean 17 square cut slices, you and I are going to eat a triangle pizza together. So I don't think that's what you mean. I think you mean that you ate 17 triangle slices, which is mad respect. I put this out as a result of Scott Duda. Scott Duda sent me to the people. And I did this poll question on Twitter. Just so you understand how the world works, I did a poll question 
asking you to talk about the <laughs> the most difficult games for Ohio State. I got 1,317 votes on the Penn State, Michigan, Nebraska, none. Who's the biggest challenge? 1317. I ask, have you at some point in your life eaten an entire large pizza by yourself? 2,850 votes. And from the jump, from the minute there were 40 votes, then 100, then 500, then 1,000, then 2,000, the entire way, it was 80-20, 80-20, 80-20. This is scientific proof. It wound up, kind of made me mad, 79% yes, you've eaten a large pizza by yourself. And someone asked, do I mean like one sitting? Yes, I mean one sitting. I don't mean like you eat three slices and you put it in the fridge and eat it the next day for lunch. That's not what I'm talking about. That is not eating an entire large pizza. That's eating part of a large pizza and then eating it for another meal. I mean a single meal, a single sitting. 79% yes, 21% no. 44 Twitter responses. Listen to you people. You are outraged that I dare to ask the question. How dare I ask Americans if they've eaten a large pizza? Cynical Negro, our guy from the podcast a couple weeks ago, did that Friday for like probably the 25th time. Callie. Callie Nicole F. See, I tried to read that, Callie. I follow her on Twitter. She's a great follower. She just moved to Atlanta like a year ago. Loyal Buckeye. Only once, and I should be slightly ashamed, being a so-called lady and all, but it was Donato's. It barely counts as a large, real, uh, a real large pizza since the crust is so thin, right? Yes, it does barely count. Um, don't at me, Donato's. But Callie admits she did it. Um, Vince Guerreri says, Only God can judge me, in all caps. Greg, Ga- Greg Glasser, kind of often. Martin McSports wants to punch me in the neck. We must hang in a completely different universe, brah. Because in my world, this is 100% all the time for everyone. Like, how dare I ask if people eat a large pizza? And, and I'm not asking because I haven't. I'm asking because I thought my previous accomplishments in the area of large pizza eating were not exceptional, but impressive. I have told stories about, hey, the time I ate a whole large pizza, the time I was at the beach with my two friends, and my two friends got a pizza for them to split, and I got a pizza just for me, and I finished my one pizza before they would finish their pizza. You don't think that story's interesting. When I was a kid, my parents would send me, uh, sometimes we'd get pizza, we'd get out and I'd say, can we get one pizza for the family and a separate pizza for me? And I'd eat like the whole pizza in the car on the way home. Again, you are not impressed because four of five Americans have eaten a large pizza. Intellectual chowder, large Domino's pizza, six pack of Jolt Cola, Contra all night on Nintendo. Those were the good old days. First time caller. By some, you mean many, right? Some meaning like, have you at some point in your life, he says many times in his life he's done it. This is what you people have opened my eyes to, that in this great country of ours, eating a large pizza by yourself, four out of five Americans, just one, says Cleology. Who is like, 
a great follow. Outraged. I think crust thickness needs to be determined, says Chad Markert. A Columbus thin crust is a heck of a lot different than a Giordano's and the like. I agree. I'm not talking a cracker crust, right? Multiple times, says Wheezy Farizi. Well, isn't that normal, says Ghost in the Sean. Last night at Papa John, says Ohio Sports Elite. I don't, hells to the yeah, says Travis Gregory. With that guy from the, uh, what's the movie where everybody's drunk in Las Vegas? The Hangover. Ken Jong, who I saw at the Final Four one time. Um, Nick Jonas. Also, do I have tickets to see the Jonas Brothers in Columbus? I do. Nick Jonas Jiff, raising his hand from George Pop 123. Has there been a point in which I didn't eat a large pizza? Matt Fenner, Music Matt 98, is acting as if he eats a large pizza for a meal every day. This is where we are. I am no longer going to tell my stories about eating a large pizza in one sitting because it is normal. And the people of Buckeye Talk Nation have let me in on this secret. So, my wife is probably coming down the stairs to say that my loud podcast shouting is keeping my children awake. My daughter has finals in the morning for high school, high school finals. And I'm shouting about eating a large pizza. You do that, right? Does everybody have this? I'm in the basement and I can hear all the footsteps above me and it's making me nervous because like, what, what did I do? Okay. I think the footsteps have stopped. Um, let's finish this with our friend Bob Flounders from Penn Live. Uh, I wanted to ask people about their pizza experiences, um, but I didn't. So there's no pizza discussion with Bob, um, but there is some really good Penn State, Penn State discussion. James Franklin, where is this Penn State program? But kicking it off with what are the Nittany Lions and their fans thinking about Ohio State with Urban Meyer retired? All right, joined by Penn State reporting legend Bob Flounders, the man that I will always remember for driving me home on my 21st birthday when I tried alcohol for the first time. So, Bob Flounders, good to hear from you. You know, that that is on my resume. I don't know. I updated it, like, shortly after uh, you, you achieved kind of cult status at, uh, uh, you know, for for, uh, for your coverage of the Browns and the Buckeyes. So I just figured that I'm going to update my resume, and that's like the second or third bullet point is, yeah, I had a I had a, a small role in shaping your young adult life by getting you, yes. I think it was your 21st birthday, and you were, you got you to get, someone's got to take you out on your 21st birthday, and uh, a bunch of us did, but I was, uh, it's, it's a great memory for me. Don't, uh, don't sell yourself short there, Bob. You are... Honestly, one of the 10 most important people in my entire life. So, uh, you know, that's... I, I should be. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you're also a fantastic Penn State writer. So um, we, we are here to talk about Penn State and sort of maybe the Penn State view uh, of Ohio yeah. State. And so let me start there, uh, Mr. Flounders. It, it, what do you think the retirement of Urban Meyer means for Penn State football? Do you think that program or that fan base or anybody there should view anything in the Big Ten differently now that Urban Meyer is gone after seven years? Well, I think for the fan base, I think they look at his retirement uh, through a couple different lenses, Doug. I mean, 
I mean, even the biggest Penn State fan, who, and the biggest Penn State fans are usually people that don't necessarily care for the Ohio State football program. I mean, you have to, you have to look at what Urban was able to accomplish at Ohio State. Not only accomplish, but he did it right out of the chute. Like, for him to hit the ground running at a program that was kind of down in the dumps considering, you know, what, when he was taking over and just immediately elevate them, you know, in just about every phase. I think if you're a Penn State fan, I think part of you is sorry to see him go because of the standards that he represented in terms of college football and what he's able to accomplish. And the fact that he had Penn State's number, I mean, uh, he, he really did. I mean, Penn State's one win against Urban. I mean, it took it, it took a fairly miraculous play to do it on their home soil, um, or else he, much like Michigan, he would have ran the table, I think, against uh, against Penn State. And those last couple of losses are going to stick with most Penn State fans for a long time. The one point losses when they had double digit leads, couldn't hold it. So I think part of Penn State's fan base is probably like, well, things got a little bit easier for us, and maybe that, that'll that'll expedite things for us in the Big Ten East. But I think. I think true fans and, and fans who can appreciate kind of what the, the 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 mark that Urban left at Ohio State in the Big Ten, I think they're going to miss him. They're going to miss the competition. They're going to miss the challenge. They're going to miss him bringing Ohio State into Beaver Stadium, not afraid of the whiteout, not afraid of the large crowds. You know, and really they played some of the great games in the series when he was coaching Ohio State, whether it was with home or away. The games at Penn State, all of them. Uh, we're just all. I mean, you, even the the the, the two thousand the two thousand and twelve game when Bill O'Brien was the coach, the double overtime game in two thousand fourteen when they won the national championship, the Penn State almost almost stole one there late. Um, the two thousand and sixteen game, obviously the the Penn State win that kind of really jump started James's program, and you know the you know last year's game and even the two thousand seventeen game in Columbus, you know what might have been for Penn State in both those instances. They were both uh, they were unbeaten in both those games. If they win those games, I think their season goes a lot differently. Um, and I, I just think that Urban Meyer's presence at, at Ohio State, um, you, know, you know, I've been covering Penn State since 2002, and I, and I don't know the Big Ten history quite like David Jones, who, who, who knows it so well that works with me, but you know, if there if there's a uh, if there's a coaching Rushmore in the Big Ten, I think I think Old Urban can make a strong case that he's one of those four guys. Yeah, I think I think you're probably right, Bob. And I, I, I'll, I'll tell you from this perspective here, I mean, nobody in Urban's tenure, um, Mark D'Antonio certainly um, handed him maybe two, his two toughest losses, right? And that sure. Michigan yeah. State kept Ohio State from the playoff in 2015, and they beat them in the Big Ten Championship in 2013 and kept Ohio State yeah. out of the national championship game that year. So, you know, that's – Mark D'Antonio cost Urban Meyer two shots at, at more national titles, which is the toughest loss you can suffer. But sure. what James Franklin did, as you mentioned, the double overtime in 2014, that the last two years were one-point games that Penn State yeah. – dominated for the first three quarters in both of those James Franklin went toe-to-toe on the field year after year that again to have three razor close losses and then that 
that program-changing win for Penn State. When you watched Penn State against Ohio State, James Franklin versus Urban Meyer, Bob, when did you watch those games and think to yourself, man, like Penn State is just a little short? You know, they need a little more talent. They need a little more speed. They need a little better coaching. Did you watch that and think that? Or did you really watch those games? And as the Penn State writer, think to yourself, you know what? Penn State's right there. They're just as good as Ohio State. Um, It's somewhere in between for me, Doug. I always thought that – I want to make sure I phrase this the right way, explain it the right way. I always thought that Urban Meyer always got everyone's best shot everyone's best shot because he was he was the he was the team he was the coach the Buckeyes were the team to beat and there's no doubt in my mind that when Penn State played an Urban Meyer Ohio State team with the exception of that 63 to 14 game I think that was in 2013 out there um, with the exception of that game Penn State always brought its A game even even that first year when O'Brien and uh, it was, I think it was Urban's first year there, and it was 35-23, and Braxton yep. Miller played out of his mind in that game at Beaver Stadium. I thought Penn State always, always brought its best game, with the exception of that one year against Ohio State. And I don't know that was that it was always the same on the other side of, uh, of the field. I mean, Michigan is obviously Ohio State's uh, top rival. They certainly get motivated to play Michigan State because of some of those losses. And I just think, you know, you know, there's, there's, I think there's been some times when Ohio State played their B game or their C game against Penn State, and that's one of the reasons why uh, some of these games have such thrilling finishes. That 2016 game that Penn State won was by no means a masterpiece by Ohio State, and I felt like the last two years, those one-point thrillers, you know, it, 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 it seemed to me like Ohio State kind of went into the fourth quarter saying, okay, we better get our act together. Or we better we better play our best or we're not going to win this game. And then they just went out and did it. I mean, JT Barrett two years ago, that was, I have to think that's the, maybe the best game that he's yep. ever played yep. uh, for Ohio State. And, and the fourth quarter uh, was a combination of Dwayne Haskins finally kind of starting to figure things out, plus Penn State just terrible tackling on those those underneath uh, those underneath plays and that curious fourth down call where they ran the ball. I, I, I always felt like those outcomes, even though they were thrilling, was they weren't necessarily indicators of how close Penn State was to Ohio State. It was an indicator of Ohio State could beat Penn State while not playing their best when Penn State did play their best. Really good. That's really interesting. Um, all right, yeah. so now that, now that Urban's gone, Bob – would your expectation be, should the expectation of Penn State fans be that James Franklin at Penn State should compete equally with Ryan Day at Ohio State in terms of recruiting, in terms of battling on the field when they play every year, just in terms of where they finish up in the Big Ten East standings, or beyond Urban Meyer, would you have a belief that there is still something inherent about Ohio State whether it's, you know, facilities or um, the location or just tradition or anything like that, national recruiting, is there anything that you would say, well, Ohio State probably, even with Ryan Day, Ohio State still might be a little ahead of, ahead of Penn State? I think that the gap is going to get a little bit 
it's going to get a little closer for sure. I don't think you can. I don't. I don't think even if Urban was exhausted there or whatever for whatever reason he needed to get out. I, I don't think you can say. I, I, what I, I don't think you, you, you can be a Penn State fan, uh, Penn State player, or a Penn State coach, and look at Urban Meyer and say he wasn't worth at least somewhere between three to five points for Ohio State every time Penn State um, played them. I, I don't know that I would say that about Ryan Day. I think uh, the book is obviously still being written about him. The gap should be a lot closer, and I, I think now with Urban out of the mix, um, you're just going to have to wait to see how Ryan recruits the next couple of years. But to me, it feels like this now should be a series where Penn State should be able to protect their home turf. Um, you know, play them tough on the road, but they, they should win at Beaver Stadium. And if they can't win at Beaver Stadium now with Urban, Urban Meyer gone, um, Penn State's got some tough questions to ask themselves. Do they have do they have the right program, the right coach, or is there someone else they can get to get Penn State to that point? Because there's not – I mean, Urban Meyer won a national championship at Florida. He won a national championship, obviously, at Ohio State. And that team that he had at Utah that was quarterbacked by Alex Smith, I think they destroyed Pitt in a bowl game. Yep. That team sure looked like it could play with any team in the country, too. The guy, the guy is one of the, the, the very, very special – coaches and program builders in, in NCAA history. You don't do that at three different programs um, and not be called a difference maker. So I do think it's going to be a little bit different. And I do think the, the impetus is on Penn State and Franklin and his staff to get this program to the point where when it's at Beaver Stadium, they should be favored and they should win the close games every time. So now... Ohio State's breaking in a new coach, and now here we have James Franklin five years in, Bob. Eleven wins um, the last two years of the Saquon Barkley era. Nine wins last year as Trace McSorley uh, was around yeah. for one more year without Saquon Barkley. Are, is, are, are we certain that, like, has James Franklin established himself at Penn State? Or now that... You know, he, he he. A lot of that was hung on Saquon Barkley because he's such an unbelievable player, and Trace McSorley seemed like the, right. the exact right kind of college quarterback you want to win with. Is James Franklin established, or now that he's lost both of those players, now do we have to really see? Okay, now can he reset and do it again with different key guys in charge? Yeah, I mean, when you talk about maybe Barkley being one of the five most physically talented players to ever play at Penn State and you talk about McSorley who really uh, you know this is this as James is this is the start of his sixth year you can't convince me that he wasn't as, as talented as Barkley was you can't tell me that that McSorley was isn't the most important recruit that 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 Franklin's got this was a three-star kid only had one quarterback offer everything else was at, de- at defensive back and it was Franklin and Ronnie at Vanderbilt or else, you know, and, and if he doesn't, if he doesn't flip from Vanderbilt to Penn state, when James comes on board, Penn state doesn't get him. I just think those are two, uh, two program greats. And yeah, um, he did it. He was able to get these guys and he was able to get to this program, get this program to the, to the point where they won, you know, they won 31 games in three years. 
Um, but yeah, he's got to be able. He's got to be able to show he can do it again. Who is who is the you know who is the the long term answer to Barkley? Who is the long term answer to Trace McSorley? Is Sean Clifford ready to be that guy? Um, you know, uh, we he's gotten some five star players. Has he gotten enough of them? You know, there's a kid as we talk about this right now. That's a five star player in Pennsylvania. Yep, that everyone assumed he was going to go. Penn State, uh, the wide receiver, uh, Julian the, the Fleming kid, Julian Fleming, and now you know we're less than two weeks two weeks out as we talk about this, Doug, and it it doesn't quite look that way anymore, and it might be that he's definitely headed to Ohio State. So, I mean, is he is is the program really quite there when when the top players in the state still you know are going out of the state? Fleming would be one. Um, DeAndre Swift, who's at Georgia, is another. I mean, it has not always broken. Uh, James's way. It's great that he got Barkley. It's great that he got Micah Parsons. It's great that he got Michael Mennett. Those were all top kids in Pennsylvania when he got them. But I think I think you're going to learn a lot about uh, what James is going to be able to consistently do at Penn State in the next two years. I think because the reason I say that is the next two teams um, have a chance to either be a really really good or maybe they backslide a little bit towards you know, pre-2016, as, as special as that 2016 team was, that thing was real close to going off the rails early in the season. Minnesota had them dead to rights before Ohio, the Ohio State game. There was a couple other games where they fell way behind. Wisconsin had them down 28-7 in the Big Ten title game. Ohio State was up two touchdowns on the road in the fourth quarter and couldn't finish it. I mean, as good as that season looks, when you just look at the numbers, there were some close calls there. So, yeah, I do think Penn State has a chance to maybe start to be more in the conversation for top 10, Big Ten East uh, division champ. But I, I don't know that they're quite there yet. I do think it's going to be the next two years. What's going to happen with this group? Because there is talent on the defensive side. There is five-star talent in the system on the offensive side. but you know, you know the deal, Doug. If you don't have the quarterback, it doesn't really matter what's going to happen. And and so I'll, we'll end with that, Bob. Sean Clifford is a, is a Cincinnati kid from St. Xavier, um, the powerhouse yeah. program down there. Is it just that, I mean, just nobody knows? Or is there an inkling one way or the other of like, yeah, people really think this kid is it? Or is there some trepidation of like, eh, we don't know about this guy? I, this is my opinion. I think that Sean Clifford uh, coming out of spring was the best quarterback on the roster, and I think it was pretty clear-cut, and I, I think that's why Tommy Stevens decided to take his talents elsewhere. Okay. I think he kind of saw the writing on the wall. Um, I think Sean Clifford, as an, as an arm talent, as an arm talent, will probably be an upgrade over Trace McSorley, and that's taken nothing away from Trace because there was a lot of other things that went into his game. He, he, he could throw the ball. He was really, he, at times, he really was a running back. He ran for 175 yards last year on Ohio State. Great leader, tough kid, played hurt, played well at times when he was hurt. John Clifford can throw the ball. He's, he's attempted seven career passes at Penn State all last year, five of seven for 195 yards and two touchdowns. He showed me more. With those seven pass attempts and a lot, and they were all in mop-up time except for two, he showed me more in those attempts 
than Tommy Stevens did as a quarterback at Penn State. And I think James made a very difficult decision at the end of spring practice. And he was very honest with Tommy about, hey, you're, you, this is not, nothing's going to be handed to you. You got to, you got to beat this guy out. And I think Tommy saw that this guy was pretty good. And for him to spend his whole career at Penn State and possibly not start, I think that would have been a tough uh, pill to swallow. But I think that Sean Clifford, absolutely, he's gotten a lot bigger. Uh, he's a confident kid. And I do think he has a chance to be uh, a very, very good quarterback at Penn State. But you know what? The measuring stick is always in the Big Ten East, and it's always the Michigan State defense, the Michigan defense, the Ohio State defense at times. And, and ultimately, everyone at Penn State gets judged by how Penn State does in those three games. Bob Flounders, PennLive.com, the Harrisburg Patriot News, and the original Uber driver back in uh, 1994 um, to take me home. It's always great to catch up with you. Um, I'm sure I'll see you in uh, Chicago for the Big Ten meetings. And uh, have a great summer, Bobby. All right. Look forward to it, Doug. Take care of yourself. All right. Thanks to Bob for that. Um, Let's wrap this up here with the last couple questions from you guys. want to throw out one more plug uh, we're nearing the end of the free trial for the Project Tech Stuff. Um, if you subscribe to the Tech Stuff, much appreciated. If you're on the free trial, you got a notice, not a notice, a text, that we're, we're, we are reminding you that this is the free trial is going to end on May 31st. Um, some people are switching over to pay for it. Um, some people are saying it's not for them. Totally get it either way. Um, I think for some fans, it's like a just depends how you consume stuff, right? I think if you're a certain kind of fan, um, to get a couple texts a day about the team you care about in your phone is like ideal. Um, I think if you're another kind of fan and you are like just totally on top of everything all the time, then maybe you don't need it. I mean, I'm not going to pretend this for everybody because um, some of you people know as much as I do. You don't need me in your phone. But, you know, it's fun. I've liked and I've really enjoyed doing it. And so if you want to go to my Twitter at Doug Maurice, there's still the link there for the free trial. You can still find the link for the free trials on Cleveland.com. Again, that's going to run out May 31st. And then we're going to keep continuing um, with the text once or twice a day for $3.99 a month. About a buck a week, $3.99 a month. You know, I think I checked. I send, I probably, I send between like, I play about 12 a week, so it's not two every day. It's a little lighter on the weekend, um, but probably about 12 texts a week for a buck. So um, if you've tried it, super grateful. If you haven't tried it, this is like nearing the end of the free trial. Um, And if it's not for you, that's great. We appreciate you listening to the podcast. So let's get to um, a last couple questions, and then I'm going to end with one from JSAT5, who asked a really good one. Because sometimes I say I'm going to save the really good questions, and I don't get to them later on. So we're just going to end with a really good one. Scott Duda did ask, though, please explain this QB room and what each kid is thinking their role might be. How do we get six that want to be in there? So um, we've had this run of, like, walk-on guys and stuff now. And it's just, you know, guys are coming. There was a, a kid from Texas who transferred from Texas A&M the other day who's going to be a walk-on. We have the kid from California who's going to be a walk-on. Gunnar Hoke is going to be your backup. Chris Chuganoff's going to be your third-string guy. And then nobody else is going to play unless it's an absolute catastrophe. So, you know, I mean, would they get a garbage-time snap? I don't know. I doubt it. 
The walk-ons at quarterbacks don't get that. They have enough scholarship guys that are trying to get snaps that the walk-ons don't get quarterbacks. But if you can be a walk-on quarterback at Ohio State, nothing but respect for that. What are kids thinking? Kids are thinking they want to be a Buckeye. Kids are thinking it's cool. Kids are thinking, and honestly, it actually is much deeper than that. Some of these kids are thinking, if they're smart, they're thinking, I want to be a high school football coach. They're thinking, I'd like to get into college coaching. And they're thinking, if I think Ryan Day knows quarterbacks and knows offense, I want to go to Ohio State. Because I know I'm never going to get paid money to play football. But I might get paid money to coach it or scout it or analyze it in some way. So if you're a walk-on and you're soaking that in, how valuable is that? And I would encourage you, I finally finished my State of the Program series with my really good interview with Ryan Day. We talked about the idea of how do you take your NFL knowledge and make it simple for college guys. It's in that story. The headline is why Ryan Day isn't in the NFL. We talk a lot about his family, his wife, his three kids. Why he came to Ohio State, why he stayed at Ohio State when he could have gone to be the Tennessee Titans offensive coordinator and sort of his philosophy, everything he learned from the NFL, what he brought to Ohio State and how that translates. So I would encourage you to read that story. That's an exclusive interview, me and Ryan Dan's office for an hour during spring football. So, you know, I understand that it's news when these things happen. It's just it's not going to have an effect on the team. They need arms for scout team. It's a great opportunity for these kids to learn the game, but it's not going to have an effect on you watching a game on Saturday. The three quarterbacks that you care about are Justin Fields, Gunnar Hoke, and Chris Chuganoff. In that order, those are the guys that are going to play in the fall. Um, Scott Dudas said we're going to lose at Northwestern, aren't we? I mean, they're going to be favored right now. Uh, Northwestern does have Hunter Johnson, former five-star quarterback, transfer from Clemson, sat out last year, a guy... Trevor Lawrence scared off. He's going to take over for Clayton Thorson, who played some good football there. They're going to be good. I mean, they're going to be competitive at the very least. I don't think they're going to be scary. Eloy Hernandez, who likes to jump into the uh, uh, podcast questions and answer them himself, which I think is a hilarious, awesome thing each week. This is a question from him. Last year during our defensive struggles, I asked, why don't we use the Michigan defense? We have better players after rewatching that game. The knock on the defense is that it was great against medium to bad teams, but horrible against talent. Talented teams, will that be our fate also? So if you're going to play that much man, you've got to have the speed to do it. And I think when we've seen Ohio State play man and press man over the years with Denzel Ward and Marshawn Latimer and Gary Conley and safeties like Malik Hooker and Jordan Fuller and Damon Webb behind it, then you can do it. With cover linebackers like Jerome Baker and Malik Harrison, then you can do it. Because you don't face skill position guys that are more skilled. Your defensive guys are more skilled than the skill. So you can man them up. The Michigan guys weren't that. Again, I'm still, I am still have a skewed view of Devin Bush, who's a really good linebacker. He's a super high draft pick. The Steelers traded up to get him. He couldn't cover Demario McCall. Michigan had good players. Rashawn Gary and Devin Bush were really good defensive players. They didn't have the overall team speed against Ohio State. That's what Eloy's referring to. It's great against medium-to-bad teams because they don't, those medium-to-bad teams don't have the speed to burn you. Paris Campbell, Terry McLaurin, Johnny Dixon, Demario. They do. They did. They will. So Ohio State, if you're, if you're worried about Ohio State absorbing that Michigan defense, that's not what they're absorbing. Ohio State's version of man defense has been better 
than that version of Michigan man over the years, and Ohio State's going to back off exclusive man. They're going to they're going to change up coverages. I think Jeff Halfley, who's going to be in charge of the back seven, at least in charge of the secondary, but it's going to be in charge of the coverages. I think Greg Madison. Most of the times you split this up, right? Someone's in charge of the pressure. Someone's in charge of the coverages. Halfley's the back end. He wants to mix it up. He wants to do NFL stuff, which again, again, if you ex- explain it simply and players understand what they're doing, I think you can go back and forth between man and zone if you do it right. And I think what they want to do is make sure, and we've talked about it, that the opposing quarterback never knows what he's going to see. They don't want the opposing quarterback to line up and say, I know what they're doing. I, don't, I, I know what this coverage is. And for years, you have known. And they've said, we don't care if you know because it's Denzel Ward. It doesn't matter if you know it. You still can't throw on him. Now they're going to say, we're going to line up, and Jeffrey Okuda and Damon Arnett are going to line up. But then when the play starts, you're not going to know for sure whether we're in man or zone on this play. And they think that's going to make it harder for quarterbacks. I understand that. It's going to be a little different than what they've done. But don't be scared of the Ohio State defense because of what Michigan did or didn't do against Ohio State last year. That's not, I don't think there's enough of a comparison there. Um, Zachary Pop put out some over-unders. Um, those we will get to in the future. Zachary Pop, giving you a little star. That means I like it. That means I remember it on Twitter. Christopher, how long will it take Ryan Day? This is Christopher Ray. Christoph Ray. See, I can't. Christoph Ray, how long will it take for Ryan Day to lead the Buckeyes to a big 10 title? Um, year two with Justin Fields back and I think with the young defensive talent that's here if I had to, if you had to I, I mean I'd put the over under at, at two and a half years and I guess I'd take the under not, ne- not necessarily this year because I'm believing in some bumps, but I'm believing I'm also going to believe for now in Justin Fields year two, Garrett Wilson year two, Chris Olave year three. I think they have a shot at Kendall Milton. We're going to do recruiting stuff. I'm talking to some people around Kendall Milton. I've already talked to some people about Julian Fleming. We're going to hit on Julian Fleming on next week's podcast because he's announcing not this Friday, but next May 31st. We're going to cover some Julian Fleming stuff, the five-star receiver from Penn State. Bob and I talked about it a bit in the Penn State podcast. We're going to talk about it more next week because that's a really big, important recruiting um, battle for Ohio State that a lot of people think Ohio State's going to win. And Kendall Milton, five-star running back from California, is going to be visiting Ohio State at that same time. His official visit is May 31st to June 2nd. I've been going back and forth with his dad a little bit. Um, I hope to have a conversation with his dad soon. I hope to talk to some other people about Kendall Milton. I want to bring you some Julian Fleming, Kendall Milton content about recruiting on next week's podcast. But for now, my guess, I'll, I'll give you Ryan Day a Big Ten title in year two. We say that in the summer before year one. Let's end with the final question now because I thought it was such a good one. JSAT5, I wrote stuff down. Best non-Buckeye Big Ten team since 1988. Not 98, not 88, 98. What is the best non-Ohio State Big Ten team since 1998? Since the conference hasn't won a non-Buckeye national title since 1997, and it was half a title for Michigan. Um, I don't. I took it as the individual one in a single year. Maybe JSAT 5, you meant what's been the best overall program. So I think there's some candidates, but I, I think it's interesting to look at it this way. Because when you go through, and I'm on the Wikipedia page for Big Ten standings year by year, you go through, it's like, well, it's 
Who's the best team in the Big Ten? Well, this year's Ohio State. This year's Ohio State. This year's Ohio State. It's Ohio State a lot of years. So I'm going to ask this. Hold on one second. That's funny. I just got, I have this, I, I have my, I have Twitter open and I guess I got DM'd by an Ohio State player um, in the middle of that. And I think his account got hacked because I was like, what, why is an Ohio State player DMing me? Which, you know, I'll interrupt the podcast for, but I'm not going to click on the link, Ohio State player who got hacked and DM me because I bet you it's a hack. It's a Russian. I think the best Big Ten team, non-Ohio State Big Ten team since 1998, see if you can think of it yourself. I have some candidates. Here's why I don't think it is. Um, In 2015, we know that Michigan State and Iowa met in the Big Ten championship. After Michigan State beat Ohio State, upset Ohio State during the regular season, the Michigan State-Iowa Big Ten championship was for a playoff spot. Iowa was undefeated. Michigan State beat them and went to the playoff. But Michigan State then got its doors blown off by Alabama in the playoff, and, and Iowa got its doors blown off by Stanford in the Rose Bowl. I don't think either of those two teams were particularly great. They had good seasons, all credit to them. I don't think they were particularly great. The best team in the Big Ten in 2015 was Ohio State. They just lost the game to Michigan State. They couldn't lose. So it's not them. Um, 2017, Wisconsin was on track uh, to be a playoff team because we know that they were undefeated going into the Big Ten championship game against an injured JT Barrett and Ohio State. And Ohio State handled them. Um, I didn't think that Wisconsin team was great. It's it's not them. That's not my answer. Um, here are my possibilities. The 2017 and 2016 Penn State teams with Saquon Barkley and Trace McSorley were really good, I think. I think they were really good. And the 2016 Penn State team took a while to get going. They beat Penn State, and they beat Ohio State that year. And if, if James Franklin hadn't won that Ohio State game, I think he might have gotten on the path to getting fired. Instead, that sets the program on the right path. That Penn State team then, that was the year they went to the Rose Bowl and got in that shootout that they lost with USC. Um, but they were really good. They were really good in 2016. And then in 2017, Penn State. That's the team that that JT Barrett led the crazy comeback against, um, and I think there's a there's a situation where if Penn State doesn't let Ohio State come back like that, I think Penn State is competing for a national title because Penn State was number two, they were undefeated, they lose thirty nine thirty eight in Columbus, then they have a hangover. And they lose to Michigan State 27-24 the next week. But they wind up beating Washington in the Fiesta Bowl. They were a top five team going into the Ohio State game. If they just prevent JT Barrett from playing the best quarter of his life, I think that 2017 Penn State team, Barkley is so exceptional. Barkley is as good of an individual talent, not from Ohio State, as I have covered and this will be my 15th year covering Ohio State. You saw it his freshman year when when Penn State came in and got their doors blown off in Columbus. And he was great as a freshman. And and I was like, who's that guy? And I didn't know he'd be what he became. But he's so rare. I think that 2017 Penn State team is in the mix. 
But the team that I'm going to go with as the best non-Ohio State Big Ten team since 1998 is 2005 Penn State. And when you go back and you think about what would a playoff had looked like, what would it have looked like before the playoff era? 2005 is the year that USC and Texas played the awesome national championship Rose Bowl. Vince Young, Reggie Bush, Matt Leinart. Vince Young runs it in at the end. But in a, in a playoff that year, the other two teams in a playoff that year would have been Penn State and Ohio State. Because Penn State finished three, Ohio State finished four. That's the game that Penn State beat Ohio State 17-10 in State College. <clears throat> Defensive end, Tom Bahali, one of Larry Johnson's best pupils, ransacked the Ohio State backfield. That defense was awesome. Paul Pazlesny, Dan Connor, um, really good Big Ten defense with some really high-level talent, some guys who went on to the NFL. Michael Robinson wasn't a perfect quarterback, but it was a really tough guy. They knew how to win. I really like that Penn State team because that 2005 Ohio State team was a team that had a really good year and then morphed into that 2006 team. But I've often said, and I think probably before you got to the 2015 Ohio State, of, of the great teams, I think probably, again, this might be my 15th year, I still think the two best Ohio State teams I've covered were 2005 Ohio State and 2015 Ohio State. Neither of them won a championship. Um, neither of them won a Big Ten championship. And Penn State beat that Ohio State team. Because that Ohio State team is is Troy Smith, but it's also A.J. Hawk and Dante Whitner and that Bobby Carpenter, that amazing defense but it's also Troy Smith. It's also Anthony Gonzalez, Ted Ginn Jr., Santonio Holmes, Nick Mangold on the offensive line. Ridiculous talent on that Ohio State team, and Penn State beat them. So I think I'd vote for 2005 Penn State as the best non-OSU team in the Big Ten since 1998. If you guys disagree, tweet at me. Um, appreciate your patronage of this podcast. I have some good stuff lined up. We're going to keep trying to have other voices on here. The rule is going to be, if it's just me, it won't be two hours. If we have other voices, then we'll we'll keep it a normal two-hour podcast. Because nobody wants to... Ah. Every now and then I get a note that says, ah, two hours of you is fine. I don't want to hear myself talk for that long. So I thought this was great. So thanks to Bob Flounders. Thanks to Aaron McMahon. Thanks to Sam McEwen. Thanks to you guys for listening. Special thanks to anybody who is subscribing for pay or for free to the text program. Again, the free trial ends May 31st. If you've heard me talk about it and you don't know what it is, this is kind of your last chance to really try it out. Um, but we really appreciate you listening to Buckeye Talk. So for Doug Maurice, thanks so much. We'll talk to you next week. And that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>